Hi, you're listening to Hear This Idea. In this episode, we talk to Dr. Spencer Wirt, who served as director of the Center for History of Physics at the American Institute of Physics from 1974 to 2009. Spencer is also the author of several books, including The Discovery of Global Warming, which has turned into a much more extended online version too, and which we spend a lot of this episode discussing. Amongst our many topics, we talk about how climate science emerged, what it took for scientists to form a consensus on climate change in the mid-1960s, and how that consensus has evolved since. We then also talk about the IPCC's emerging understanding of so-called tipping points in the climate system, and our current best guesses as to what kind of threat they actually pose. And lastly, we turn to one of Spencer's other books called Nuclear Fear, which looks at the changing cultural relationship that humans have had with nuclear energy, and why it remains stigmatized amongst many environmentalist groups. I've definitely found Spencer's work to be some of the most insightful reading I've done all this year. Uh, For one, I think that's because despite having heard a lot about climate change in the news, it turns out I just actually really underrated how nuanced and complicated our understanding of the climate system is. I think, as Spencer puts it, understanding how scientists themselves have wrestled with these really hard questions over several decades, taking many twists and turns, it just gives you a really great insight into understanding these ideas yourselves and, as said, how nuanced some of these ideas are. I've definitely had no idea just how little we know about clouds and how important that actually is to understanding how bad climate change could get. But even if you're not interested in climate change itself, I think there are still many important meta-lessons to take away. On a research level, that includes how to approach a problem that just has a lot of deep uncertainty, and that requires you to organize many different disciplines to collaborate, and probably also requires you to change your deep-held assumptions on several occasions. And then on a policy level, I think some of the takeaways include how to communicate complex topics to decision makers, and also pushing for what, at least on the onset, are some pretty radical and possibly unpopular policies, and turning these to actually be part of the mainstream. So even though this recording ended up being two parts, I still think we could have talked for much longer. Uh, If you're interested in learning more, I suggest you check out our links in the write-up and also visit Spencer's own website, history.aip.org forward slash climate. But for now, without further ado, here's the episode. Okay, well, my name is Spencer Wirt. I'm uh, trained as a physicist. Um, Most of my career I've spent as director of the Center for History of Physics at the American Institute of Physics. So I've been a historian of science that currently my main activity is uh, updating and maintaining my large website on the discovery of global warming. Well, let's start there then with this framing around the discovery of, of global warming, because it's something that before your work, I hadn't really thought of uh, like much before. Um, you know, I'm a, a guy in his young 20s. The idea of climate change has to me at least been been with me like most of my life. And it just seems very obvious that global temperatures are rising, that human greenhouse gas emissions are the driving force behind this, and that resulting climate change will be a really bad thing uh, for, for humans. But as you point out in your work, none of these things were necessarily obvious and even fairly recent discoveries in some cases. And in fact, this process of scientific discovery has a really super interesting history behind it. Yeah, well, the, the the reason I switched from physics into history of physics was because I felt that for many people, the best way to understand something is to understand the history of it. And that's true both in science, when you start with the simple things uh, historically, and it's also true of the politics and the social things around it. If you don't understand the history, it's like being a person without a memory. You really don't know how you got here. That's interesting. I feel like personally, I would have said that's definitely true of politics, and it's less clear for me of physics. Can you say more about why it might be useful for me as a, if I'm a physicist, to understand the history of my field? 
Because often it starts with the simplest problems, and you, if you see how the scientists themselves worked through it, then it's it's a good way to understand the science, sort of along with the scientists themselves. But it has a deeper thing. You you don't really expect everybody to understand the equations of radiative transfer, but everybody can understand the scientific process. It's actually something that you ought to be using in your own life. You know, evaluating evidence and facts and coming to conclusions. So it's 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 valuable to understand the science. It's essential to understand the scientific process. Yeah, and it definitely felt to me that one of the main takeaways from your books was really just championing the scientific process. If we think that it took many decades for scientists to get to grip uh, with the ideas of climate change, then a naive interpretation might be that maybe the case for global warming just isn't that strong, and that science has a tendency to uh, like be wrong or um, be overconfident. But I think really, as you point out, I think it speaks much more to how rigorous this work has been that the scientific consensus has in fact changed uh, when new evidence comes to light and that lots of skepticisms around climate change have been seriously explored and tested. And that really thousands of people have been involved in this process and like double checked a lot of a lot of work. There's an additional thing which applies in climate science uh, much more than other fields of science, which is that it's become a big political issue and people came up with all sorts of reasons why we shouldn't believe that the humans are causing climate change. And each of these ideas came up with seriously considered by scientists and refuted. And yet these ideas are still around now. All Nothing disappears on the internet. They're what we call zombie ideas and people run across them and they ask, oh, that sounds reasonable. And if you understand the history, you'll understand exactly the fact that scientists also puzzled over these things and decisively refuted them. Can you say more about zombie ideas? Yes, I, I think the, the, the phrase, uh, well, it was perhaps not invented, but popularized by Paul Krugman, who talked about zombie ideas in economics, that people still have ideas about economics that were uh, decisively dismissed by you know real professional economists uh, decades or even generations ago. And the same thing holds with uh, global warming. You can go out on the internet and you can see all sorts of um, arguments for why you shouldn't believe in global warming, ideas that might have been taken seriously by scientists in the 1970s or 80s, but aren't true now. An example, uh, I, I think uh, you, you, you can find in polls and so forth that 10 or 20% of the public believes that global warming is probably caused by changes on the sun. Uh, which, you know, I actually, when I was a physicist, I was a solar physicist, so I followed this controversy from the beginning, and for a little while, I thought, well, there's it's probably not true, but there's a there's a valuable argument there, and then eventually it turned out to be total garbage. But you can still easily go on the internet and find the argument that global warming is entirely caused by cyclical changes in the sun. Right. Well, how about we go even further back in history? Then um, I'm curious to know when do you think the idea of the greenhouse effect was first proposed roughly speaking uh, we know exactly because it was proposed by a french scientist named joseph fourier back in the 1820s and he actually didn't use the analogy of a greenhouse he used the analogy of a cold frame which is a little box with a glass piece of glass on top of it that you use to incubate uh, seeds in the winter or in, in cold weather and he you, he said, well, the the Earth he he had what was not a not now accepted as a good argument, but 
what seemed to have been a good argument at the time that if you take a rock and put it at the Earth's distance from the sun, it should be very cold. Well, we actually, with modern science, we know that is true. If you just have a bare rock, like let's say the dark side of the moon, it will be extremely cold being at this distance of the sun. So Fourier asked, oh, well, what keeps this from happening? And the only thing that could do it is the atmosphere. So he compared the atmosphere with a pane of glass, just like on one of these cold frames. And then later on, people said, oh, well, actually, let's call it a greenhouse. People, only, only some people use cold frames, but everybody knows what a greenhouse is. It's actually not a very good analogy because the greenhouse mainly works by just keeping the heat hot air trapped inside. But nevertheless, it's, it's, it's basically the idea that the uh, atmosphere uh, keeps infrared radiation, heat rays from escaping from the so Fourier understood this and it's, I think quite quite uh, rapidly accepted by the very few scientists who had any interest at all in these things. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. And is this the same Fourier of Fourier analysis? Yes. Cool. Some legacy. Yes. He, he was, uh, he, he had some kind of an unfortunate uh, health condition, which meant that uh, heat bothered him tremendously. He went to Egypt with Napoleon and couldn't stand it. And he, he uh, had to wear heavy clothing all his life. And in fact, died by tripping on the stairs over his robe and falling down the stairs. I'd love if you could speak to how uh, Fourier's idea of the greenhouse gas effect was received by, by other scientists at the time. Well, again, there were hardly even any scientists in those days. Uh, there were very few, few people. Fewer still were concerned with questions of heat. But the ones who did sort of, oh, probably it, it, it makes sense. And like many ideas of the time, it was an idea that made sense but remained to be proven. And it, it was actually proven by uh, Tyndall. Well, Tyndall was more interested in cold and for, for two reasons. In the first place, by Tyndall's time, the ice ages had been discovered, although it was still controversial. The idea that at some time, you know, 100,000 years ago, all of Northern Europe had been covered by miles of ice when the evidence seemed pretty strong and people began to wonder how could it be possible for, uh, you know, for the Earth's temperature, there's climate to change so radically. Of, of course, they thought it took hundreds of thousands of years, so it wasn't anything of immediate concern, but it became one of the great scientific uh, problems of the 19th century, what caused the ice ages. And Tyndall said, well, if Fourier is right, then the changes in the composition of the uh, gases in the atmosphere could change it. And he had uh, a second reason for being interested in this because he was an alchemist. He, he made some first ascents in the Alps. He almost fell into a crevasse and died on a glacier. So he had a great interest in the physics and so forth of ice. So Fourier being a um, consummate uh, experimentalist devised an apparatus whereby he could actually measure the transition, the transmission of heat through uh, gases. And so he, he, he tried the normal gases in the atmosphere, oxygen and nitrogen, uh, which, which by the way, you couldn't just buy them off the shelf. You had to make them yourself. And he found that oxygen and nitrogen were transparent to gases. So he was rather puzzled. But in his laboratory, you know, he had a Bunsen burner that he used for making his glassware. And he had, so he had a gas jet. So he tried the, uh, what they called coal gas in those days, was generated from coal, mostly 
about natural gas now, mostly methane, and he found that it blocked uh, the heat rays as effectively as a block uh, piece of wood. So that encouraged him to go on and try other gases, and he eventually found that uh, two gases are mainly responsible for it. Uh, one is carbon dioxide, and the other is water vapor. So, and then he, he went on and developed this to, to a great extent. But before I go that, let me go back to your initial question and how well this was accepted. And there's an interesting um, footnote, if you will, that, that shows how widely the Fourier's idea was accepted. And that is uh, a, a feminist and amateur artist in the United States named Eunice Foote, who had the idea of, well, let, let, let's put some gases in glass tubes and put them outside or, you know, put them in sunlight and see what happens. And she found that the tube containing carbon dioxide got hotter than normal air. And she correctly figured that it was trapping the, the heat rays. And she said, well, even, you know, perhaps indeed uh, it was uh, uh, changes in the carbon dioxide of the content of the atmosphere is from volcanoes or whatever might have explained the ice ages. Now, uh, and, and this even got published in a short form, but uh, there, there were three problems. In the first place, Eunice Foote was an amateur. She never published anything else. She was totally unknown. Uh, second, she was a woman, and that always was a strike against her in those days. And third, she was an American, and people in those days, the, the, the great scientific metropolises of Europe, paid very little, little attention to what came from, uh, from America. So as far as we know, uh, although she first discovered the carbon dioxide greenhouse effect, nobody, it was a century passed before anybody realized that she was the first one. But it does show that the idea was uh, already widespread uh, before Tyndall, in this case, a year before Tyndall. Yeah, that's a like really fascinating point. And I think, again, a reminder, right, to how science and society are linked. Um, you, you mentioned here that a lot of the early work was like motivated by trying to understand the ice ages, which I guess is like more looking far in the past um, rather than, than ahead in time. Yeah, it was, it, well, it was looking ahead in the sense that there was the question, when will be the next ice age? Uh, nobody expected it for hundreds or thousands of years, but nevertheless, it was an interesting question because uh, by the late 19th century, they recognized that there had been a series of advances and retreats of the great ice sheets. So they presumed that sooner or later, uh, one would hope tens of thousands of years later, uh, the, the ice would come again. Mm, mm. Yeah, well, can you maybe speak to that a bit more? Um, I know, for example, that uh, understanding of how quickly uh, like ice ages can come about has changed a lot over time and in turn affected our understanding of, of climate change too. Okay, well, uh, that came first from deep sea cores. If you pull up a core of, sea, of clay from the bottom of the sea, and this was people who began to do this in the 50s and 60s, then you can... Uh, extract from the clay tiny fossil shells, and by an analysis of the isotopes in the shells, uh, you can determine the sea surface temperature at the time that the shell formed and drifted to the bottom of the ocean. And uh, uh, this this proved to you know the ice ages showed up very clearly in this, and you could see that uh, the ice ages might last. Uh, uh, tens of thousands of years, and that the end of an ice age took place over the span of uh, three or four thousand years, it seemed. Now, there's there's another story there, 
which is that when these uh, layers were laid down, there was what's called bioturbation, little worms go and stir them around. So you can't really see anything that happened in less than a few hundred years because it's all smeared out. So nobody was looking in these things for rapid climate change and the general idea, and we're talking now the 1960s and 1970s, uh, was that it would take uh, several thousand years and you would drift slowly into an ice age, which is by and large true. We, we know now, and that's that's a story we could get around to another uh, later on, perhaps. We, we know now that things can happen. There's glitches in this process. Things can change very suddenly. Uh, but the, the general drift to an ice age uh, takes thousands and thousands of years. And this, this was well understood by the 1970s. And so it sounds to me like... Um over the course of the 60s and the 70s and into the 80s, as we began to better understand um, the mechanics behind ice ages, we began to appreciate just how much more sensitive the climate was to fairly small changes, such as in CO2 and methane concentration. Exactly. That, and the, yeah. the, the key here was from these um, uh, seabed things and also these were, you know, in, in, in science, it's not enough to find something. Uh, people say, oh, you have to repeat the experiment. No, that's not what scientists want to do. They want to find the same results with completely separate means. So there was, uh, well, one, one of the great heroes of the story, a guy by the name of Wally Broker, who only died recently, uh, went tromping around the world to places like dry lake beds in Nevada and coral reefs and so forth, and found there are other, other ways to measure the process of the ice age, uh, the, the dry lakes in Nevada had filled and emptied with the ice ages. The coral reefs showed how the sea level had gone up and down as the ice formed and melted. And so he got very similar results in this corroborated the uh, sequence, the schedule of the ice ages, which had been found in the sea cores, and which was completely different from what the geologists had said. These geologists had converged on something like four great ice ages over the last million years from their evidence of the rocks being pushed around and so on. But it turned out that there had actually been like a dozen over the last uh, a million years, or well, you can go back of 40 million years, actually. And um, they were very regular. Uh, you could do a, get back to free, you could do a free analysis and find what the periodicity of them was. And to everybody's surprise, it matched uh, a schedule that had already been laid out mathematically in the 1930s by a Serbian mathematician and meteorologist named Milutin Milakovic. Milakovic had said, uh, well, you know, the Earth's orbit around the sun is not exactly perfect. Uh, it's influenced, especially it gets kind of pulled out of shape as Jupiter goes around. So sometimes it's more nearly circular, and sometimes it's a little more elliptical. Sometimes, as at, at present, during norm, uh, northern hemisphere winter, we're actually closer to the sun than during northern hemisphere summer. But at other times, we might be farther from the sun during northern hemisphere winter. And what difference does it make? Well, it makes these subtle changes in sunlight as they fall on the uh, on the Arctic, okay? And uh, so what that means is that the ice will melt and the snow will melt a little earlier or a little later, depending on these astronomical things. And the astronomical timetable exactly matched the actual timetable of the ice ages. 
well, these are just tiny little changes in sunlight. How could they do that? And so people at this point, and this was in, in particular, there was a meeting in Boulder in 1965 when they brought together the solar experts and the volcano experts and the seabed experts, oceanographers, all these different specialties and computer experts. And what they came out with was, well, the climate system must be very delicately balanced. Uh, it just takes a little thing to set off an ice age. And, and so this, this, this was tied in with the origins of chaos theory and the understanding that the flap of a wing and a butterfly in Brazil can set off a tornado in Texas and that kind of thing, that some natural systems are delicately balanced. This was in contradiction to what most people had believed for generations. There was a long-standing belief that the earth is in a natural balance. There is a balance of nature. Uh, track it. You don't have to track it back very far to find that it's a God-given balance of nature, that the earth is a fit habitation for human beings. And so scientists had various ways of showing, well, there are stabilization mechanisms, there are feedbacks, what we call negative feedbacks, which negative feedback is good because it, you know, if you get out of shape, it pushes you back to the normal thing. And people had believed that these negative feedbacks would completely dominate any kind of changes. For example, that if you put more carbon dioxide into the air, and we haven't talked about that yet, but if humans put more carbon dioxide into the air, the then the oceans will absorb it. Or if they don't, well, if, 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 it, if it gets warms up a little bit, then of course there's more moisture in the air. So clouds will form and reflect sunlight back. So there's these natural mechanisms that will keep everything stable. And it was around 1965 that people began to question this. Right. And so just to try saying back what I've heard there, this sounds like a fairly big, radical reinterpretation of how the climate works. So it sounds like before around this point in the 60s, there was this view that the climate was some enormous, fairly slow moving and crucially self-correcting system. It's a bit like, you know, if you try to tip over a cruise ship by pushing it, it'll just just kind of balance back very easily. But now there's this new understanding that, in fact, um, the climate is, is very sensitive to very small perturbations. So a bit like how a you know, butterfly can uh, cause a tornado in, in, in Kansas by flapping its wings in Singapore or something. There are these um, uh, kind of chaotic dynamics that people were first beginning to appreciate around this time. Does that sound right? right? Well, there's there's actually two things going on here. One is the climate and the other is the size of the human perturbation. So let me back off on that one a little bit. Okay, we'll, we'll go back to Arrhenius uh, in 1897, who was the first person to make an actual calculation. By that time, they knew enough about carbon dioxide and so forth that Arrhenius thought he could make an actual calculation of the greenhouse effect. Uh, and his interest, of course, was primarily to find out whether the greenhouse effect uh, of carbon dioxide could in fact be sufficient to cause an ice age. And he went through a year of pencil and paper calculations. It's believed that he did this because uh, he, he had gotten into a marriage with a scientist, which was a mistake in the late 19th century because he wanted her to be a housewife. So she, she left him and took their little boy and he was devastated. Uh, and it's believed that that's why he was willing to spend a year sitting down doing pencil and paper calculation, which now you could probably do on your wristwatch in uh, 10 seconds. Uh, but at any rate, he calculated that if 
there was a, you know, something happened and volcanoes stopped or whatever, and uh, the, the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was cut in half. Uh, it would be enough to cause an ice age. You could, you would lower the temperature by several degrees, which averaged over the entire world for every second is definitely enough to cause an ice age. Uh, and then there was a colleague of his, by the name of Hugbaum, who had been studying the motions of carbon dioxide and how much uh, volcanoes produce and so forth. And he had come to the conclusion that as of that time, the late 19th century, humans were producing as much carbon dioxide as volcanoes were. Humanity had become a geological force. Uh, now, at that time, he and Arrhenius thought that, well, the oceans will, of course, take up most of it. So uh, it will take centuries before uh, the, there's much warming. And, uh, and uh, of course, uh, if you lived in uh, Sweden, which was where they were, then a, a couple of degrees of warming did not sound like such a bad idea. So they weren't too worried about it. Now we will skip forward to 1957 because it's the first time that anybody really took this very seriously. Roger Ravel, who was a consummate oceanographer, the, the prince of oceanographers of his generation, you know, understood seawater chemistry very well, uh, realized that seawater doesn't take up carbon dioxide as rapidly as you would think. Because if you add carbon dioxide to seawater, of course, it makes it more acidic. You're creating a little carbonic acid. But if you change the pH of the seawater that way, then some of the carbon dioxide will evaporate back out. Seawater is actually that's not just salt water. It has all kinds of things. Boron ions play a role in this and so forth. There's a buffered solution, but the chemist called a buffered solution. It resists change. So because of the acidification, uh, seawater would only take up half as much carbon dioxide as people had thought. Well, so Ravel thinks, well, that means, you know, if you go back to Arrhenius, uh, then, well, maybe it won't be, you know, a millennium, but it'll be several centuries before things get warming. But then here's something else that was happening in 1957. People were beginning to recognize that we had entered a phase of exponential growth. It seems hard to grasp this, but in the 1930s, people at best imagined linear growth. I mean, there was the Depression, there were wars, linear growth of, of humanity and industry uh, that, 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 you know, we, we just we were on a sort of a steady upward thing or, you know, nobody even thought of China and so forth as industrializing. By Ravel's time, he realized that it was an exponential and it was doubling like every 30 years. So there were now twice as many people as in Arrhenius's time and there was twice as much carbon dioxide produced per person because of industrialization. And so, and he realized that, well, another 30 years is going to be four times as much people and four times as much industrialization. That's 16 times as much carbon dioxide produced in, as in Arrhenius' time. And so Ravel for the first time said, hey, wait a minute, by the start of the 21st century, global warming will be visible. So this, this is the other side. Number one, the climate is sensitive. And number two, that we are banging on it with a big hammer. But before we get more into the like human uh, emission aspect here, I'd love to hear a bit more on this topic of like negative feedback loops, which, as you described, seems like it was a pretty persistent idea among scientists. Um, you mentioned that one thought was that CO2 would just get uh, kind of absorbed by the oceans uh, and kind of prevent global warming that way. Uh, but can you describe some of the like other mechanisms that have been proposed and how scientists think about these now? 
Well, uh, first, let me start with the clouds, because that was when the people actually mentioned back in Arrhenius's time. <clears throat> uh, that is something that has actually only been sorted out in the 21st century. Uh, is, and, and indeed, we're, we're still trying to get an accurate understanding of what's happening to clouds. So for a long time, people were arguing that uh, the increase of clouds would be enough to prevent global warming. And it, warm air holds more moisture. Right. If you if as, as, as you know, it's more humid in the summer than in the winter. Right. Uh, you need a humidifier in the winter. Warm. Uh, there's there's an equation for how much moisture you add to the air when it warms up. Uh, so if you have global warming, the air will hold more moisture. Actually, this is the main factor in the greenhouse effect. Uh, water vapor is a much more important gas than carbon dioxide. However, the Earth is a warm is <laughs> Earth is a very wet planet. And what uh, water vapor, you know, water atmosphere rains out in a week or so, whereas uh, carbon dioxide lingers in the atmosphere for many centuries. So carbon dioxide acts as the regulator of the average temperature of the atmosphere, and therefore it acts as a regulator how much water vapor is in there. So if if Earth were a completely dry planet, adding carbon dioxide to a certain amount might warm it up one degree, but throw in the water vapor and all of a sudden you get a lot more water vapor and that adds another couple of degrees to the warming. Okay, so warmer atmosphere has more water vapor, uh, which incidentally is one of the reasons why forest, catastrophic forest fires are increasing the forests for wetter uh, in the summer. Yeah, okay, so it seems natural that if you have more water vapor, you're going to have more clouds. Unfortunately, uh, what, what, what seems natural isn't always the case. There are a hundred different types of clouds. They have different effects. Uh, some clouds reflect sunlight uh, and cool the earth. Some clouds are kind of thin and they reflect carbon dioxide. Uh, there's tropical clouds. There's some clouds uh, results of convection which carries heat to the atmosphere. It's hideously complex. And I, 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 uh, I, I I could talk for an hour in very boring terms as to how people have tried to come to grips with the effects of clouds. Suffice it to say that as late as the 1990s, there were serious scientists who thought that uh, increasing cloudiness would retard global warming. And there were a, a few uh, old uh, curmudgeons who said that it would prevent global warming altogether. And it's only, I would say, in the last uh, 20 years that we've come to understand that global warming actually on the net decreases cloudiness, or at least decreases the kinds of clouds <clears throat> that would help uh, keep the Earth cool. And there's additional worries that if we made the Earth temperature really hot, the clouds you know, would, might even disappear. But fortunately, that doesn't seem likely. But uh, but it, it's something that took a very long time to sort out. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Uh, I mean, as an outsider, it just seems um, so bizarre that like clouds really seem one of the like key like open questions of of, of climate change and yeah, like how uh, like bad things could get. Um, yeah, it's like definitely not something I would like normally um, yeah have, have thought to associate um, with it. Um, can you describe some of the like other uh, kind of like proposed self-correcting uh, mechanisms? So one I definitely want to touch on is the the vegetation effect. Vegetation, that's that's another matter, uh, and uh, there's a lot going on there. Carbon dioxide is a fertilizer, uh, so the earth is getting greener. 
On the other hand, uh, the forests uh, in Siberia and Canada are marching northward and they're dark because uh, compared with the uh, snow. So, so they add to global warming by adding their darkness to it. So vegetation is very important for taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. That, uh, that it, there's, there's, there's a wide variety of effects. There, that, that's the, the whole idea of vegetation and the effect of biology is again something that has preoccupied many scientists for many years. It's kind of a side issue. You see, this is why I did a website, okay? Uh, because th there's, there's 20 different stories of global warming and they're all taking place simultaneously. And uh, especially in the early days, the people who are on one story never even heard of the people in the other story. This was at this bowl or meeting was important. They actually got the oceanographers and the volcanologists and so forth in the same room. Uh, but the, by and large, there've been many parallel stories. Uh, so uh, you, can, <laughs> you, need a, you need a hyperlinks to follow it all. So it sounds like the history of uh, understanding climate change is a history of many concurrent tracks, uh, different kinds of people who really should have been talking to one another a little more. I'm curious to know, do you think there are, that is still the case? Do you think there are still um, isolated groups working on climate change who really ought to understand more about their respective fields than they currently do? No, great strides have been made in that direction uh, as people came to realize the importance of climate change. Uh, there, there were uh, important initiatives to precisely to bring people together. And in fact, there were, there were some fascinating interdisciplinary collaborations. For example, uh, the computer modelers wanted to check their, comp their computer models against a different planet. Okay, we only have one planet to work with. And if you adjust your models so that they work precisely to reproduce the present climate, how will you know if they work with a, a different climate? Well, we do know a different climate and that's the climate we had during the ice ages. Uh, so let's let's try to model that. But then the question is, what was the climate in the ice ages? So enter from off stage a totally different group of people, the paleoclimatologists, who have been digging up uh, seashells from the seabed and stuff like that. And they say, well, your climate doesn't match our climate. So then they get together over the course of years. They, they have meetings, they thrash things out, they exchange papers, whose climate is correct. Well, it, it, it turned out, of course, that both were incorrect. They, they, they computer, this computer modelers started out trying to make their computers match the paleo record and it didn't. So the paleontologist says, you're wrong. But eventually it turned out that the paleontologist said, oh, I'm sorry, we were wrong. Uh, you, you know, you're, you're, the fact that you couldn't beat your computer into submission shows that there must be something good going on in that. So that's just one example of hundreds of collaborations like this, uh, which were organized uh, eventually under the United Nations. They, the United Nations Environmental Program and the World Health Organization, I'm uh, sorry, the World Meteorological Organization started to form collaborations of which, of course, the climax was the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Uh, all, sci all climate scientists now are in a certain sense working for the IPCC. They, they, their, their workshops, everything they do is organized around that. The computer modelers in particular, uh, the IPCC report will only uh, report on things that have been published before the report is finalized. So uh, everybody is 
and, you know, they has a deadline when they're going to publish publish the things. Well, the computer modelers, this is a deadline six years ahead. So they 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 quickly buy their new computers and start ginning up their new models, uh, and then get together and compare their models. Twenty different groups will get together in big international meetings to compare their models and find out why is this model doing that, and your model is better for this thing, and my model is better for that thing. And then they hasten to publish it just in time for the next IPCC report. And that's just an example of what happens in one field. So in short, the IPCC and all the stuff that happens under it is unquestionably the greatest and best organized engine for the production of important knowledge that has ever existed. It's a remarkable uh, development and entirely international and with great efforts being made to make sure that the developing nations have an adequate representation in the entire process. Yeah, there are just like so many sub stories here that really like all just deserve their their own episode. You know, there's this like political story here of how the IPCC came about. There is this like also just fascinating story of how climate modeling has been like really deeply interwoven with advances in computing. Yeah, it just feels like there are like for every answer there are just a ton more questions I, I really want to like ask and, and kind of get lost in. Ah, that's the story of climate science. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, let me maybe take a step back here and kind of try and touch on the like lots of different themes uh, uh, we've talked about here and kind of emphasize what strikes me here as the, the main narrative, which is that, that there is this big emerging shift happening in how we think about the climate. Um, that before uh, we assumed that the climate was like broadly imbalanced and had all of these like self-correcting mechanisms uh, in place. And that if things do change, um, we should expect things to change very slowly and gradually over perhaps like many thousands of years. And then also that if we are on any sort of long-term trajectory, uh, it is that we're heading towards another ice age where things are getting colder rather than warmer. But then as you've described, um, touching on, on all of these things, um, all three of these like uh, kind of assumptions are now being questioned by by the scientific community. And this actually seems to paint a much more fragile picture uh, of the climate where things can go uh, like kind of catastrophically wrong. And then this is finally linked with the uh, economic insight that by the 1950s, humans are actually just producing a lot of greenhouse gases by virtue of uh, economies uh, rapidly growing and uh, just having been around for, for a ton of time that kind of builds up this, this cumulative stock. So surely then, um, you know, you would just expect that at some point uh, humans should actually be able to, to see the impact that, that we're having or at the very least kind of hints of this uh, like global warming phenomenon uh, taking place. So maybe with all of this kind of elaborate uh, context set up, uh, I want to ask you, Spencer, when did we first start seeing uh, this effect uh, in the temperature record and why in some ways did it take so long uh, for, for people to kind of pick up on? Okay, well... Uh, actually, people in the 1930s began to notice uh, that climate was changing, uh, at least around the North Atlantic, which was where everybody who counted was thinking. And, and, and geezers in the United States says, oh, uh, it's warmer than when I was a boy. That lake used to freeze over every winter and so forth and so forth. And by this time, they had weather records going back to the 1890s. And they, it, it turned out that the grandpa was right, that the thing had been warming. And uh, everybody assumed that this was part of some natural cycle. You know, the whole idea of natural cycles, which you will still hear a lot of people. Uh, I would think you will find many people talking about, oh, it's all just a natural cycle. This idea was very prominent. And it, it, there was nothing unreasonable 
about it. You know, the droughts come in long, century-long spells. It can be hot spells. It can be long, cold spells. Why not? So it, it, it seemed like a natural thing, and uh, especially as temperatures records progressed by the time you got into the 1960s, uh, it, it seemed to have leveled off. Now, bear in mind, this is all for the Northern Hemisphere. Nobody knew much about what the temperatures were in the Southern Hemisphere. We've been able to go back and reconstruct it using things like the you know seabed things and also logs from old whaling ships and so forth. We've been able to reconstruct the Southern Hemisphere temperature. But in the 1960s and 70s, they really only knew the Northern Hemisphere temperature. And they saw that it had been leveling off, maybe even dipping a little bit. And some people suspected, which we now know is correct, that it was because of pollution, the atmospheric pollution, and also haze from dust being kicked up from increasing agriculture and so forth. So there was this other human effect, which was uh, coal smoke and industrial pollution and so forth, that was uh, actually bringing some cooling, as we now know only the Northern Hemisphere. So there were even some ideas that, well, it, uh, they, they knew that we were going to go drift slowly into the next ice age. In fact, it was a little mysterious that we hadn't already been getting cooler because if you follow the Milankovitch cycles, then over the next few thousand years, we should be drifting into a new ice age. That was just, that was the actual natural cycle that every 10,000 years or so, you, you, you drift into an ice age. Uh, slowly, but still it was a little puzzling that we weren't even a little colder than we were now. And then now this pollution would, um, uh, bother it. So uh, there were some scientists who said, well, we're actually going to have global cooling because obviously the pollution is increasing tremendously. And so we're going to have global cooling. Now, there were there were actually some, it was, became enough of an interesting issue that somebody did a survey of climate scientists. And there were some of them who said they'd expect global cooling. There were about as many who expected there were global warming. And the vast majority then said them, who knows? We just don't have enough research on it to be able to say. So it's not that there was a serious movement towards global cooling. It was, you know, just sort of, well, there's this other hypothesis that maybe, you know, maybe, maybe this could happen and on a very slow kind of a thing. And, you know, 5,000 years from now, we'll be in a new ice age, or maybe even faster if we put up enough pollution. Well, this only lasted a few years because by the late 1970s, people said, well, hey, hey wait a minute, you know, uh, if you put pollution in the atmosphere, it's going to rain out in a few weeks, okay? And in addition, there's this thing called the um, Environmental Protection Agency and uh, all the advanced nations are starting to cut back on their pollution. Meanwhile, we put carbon dioxide in the air, it's going to stay there for 500 years. So by around 1978, the, the whole idea that there was big global cooling uh, had vanished and everybody agreed that there was going to be global warming. In addition, just around that time, the first models came out that people believed. They were models that could create a climate that looked like the present climate. This was the work of Sukoro Manabe, Suki Manabe, uh, in, at a basically a weather bureau uh, facility in Princeton, has succeeded in making a model that looked kind of like the present climate. Uh, it, it had. Uh, it had a dry southwest. It, it had rain bands and you know the tropical rainforests and so forth. It wasn't very accurate, you know, exact, but it looked roughly like the present climate. So Manabe says, "Okay, uh, let me put more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Let me double the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere." 
you know, the temperature rises a few degrees. And then there was another guy, another of the great heroes, Jim Hansen, who had a much cruder model, but, uh, uh, but he could run it a lot faster so he could try out different things in it. Uh, and, and he tried out different ways of adding carbon dioxide and he got uh, the temperature warming up. And in fact, so, so this was serious enough for the president's science advisor who happened to be a geophysicist to uh, say that there could be serious implications here. You know, it might even affect our energy policies if we don't want to produce much carbon dioxide. And when about was this? Uh, this is 1979. 79, okay. And so he did what people, what presidential science advisors do. He went to the National Academy of Sciences to get a definitive answer. Now, the National Academy of Sciences doesn't always give a definitive answer, but they'll tell you what they know. They, they, they may just say, we don't know, but they'll, they'll, they'll tell you what the scientists know. So the National Academy of Sciences did what they do, which is they got together a committee of the best experts. Uh, the experts interviewed uh, Manabe and uh, Hansen. They tried running other models. They found that no matter what you did, no matter how crude or how sophisticated the model, you can't do anything that looks roughly like the present climate and not have the temperature rise several degrees. Uh, if you add more carbon dioxide. So they came to the conclusion that if you double the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which at that time they understood was likely to happen by the mid or late 21st century, which seemed very far off, uh, you would double the carbon dioxide and they said the temperature would rise by three degrees, plus or minus 50%. Uh, a result which astonishingly is exactly what the current best computer models get. although. The fifty percent has gone down to between two and five degrees, so it's a little higher on the lower end. Uh, and they they said we have tried but failed to see any reason why this shouldn't be true. So the, you know the, the National Academy of Sciences pronounced, yes, uh, as long as we keep on producing carbon dioxide, there's going to be global warming uh, enough to cause very serious consequences. But hey, that's the mid twenty first century, you know, far far away. So all we need to do now is what I call the official motto of the National Academy of Sciences. More research on this topic is necessary. <laughs> so this seems like another kind of distinct point in, in the history that you're telling, where we see this consensus building now uh, of there actually being uh, kind of human-caused global warming. But I also just wanted to pick up on something you said much earlier on about air pollution, which is that it was just like really surprising for me to hear, I guess, as an outsider about this uh, dual effect where on the one hand, greenhouse gases uh, warm the climate, but on the other hand, some air pollution particles actually help uh, like reflect sunlight and, and thereby like actually cool the climate. And that in the early stages, uh, perhaps of like industrialization, that was actually enough to obscure what was going on. And even, you know, in the, in the 1950s or so, kind of throw climate models or, or, or throw climate scientists off as to like what was happening. Yes, yes. Air, air pollution, air pollution to this day is a significant, has a significant effect. Uh, and it, it's, it's a deep problem for the climate scientists because you know, coal pollution kills 10,000 people a year just in the United States alone, many more in China. Uh, and so we want less of this pollution, but that cutting, the more you cut it back, the more it accelerates global warming. I, I guess I wanted to underline this, just hearing what you were saying there, Spencer. It sounds like there was maybe a run of bad luck when we got this 
um, temporary cooling between, you know, the 40s to maybe the 60s, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, which kind of reinforced this um, global cooling hypothesis, which turned out to be false, of course. However, my impression was that um, the something like the climate consensus was global cooling until fairly late on where it flipped. Absolutely not. Absolutely and that's just not, not the case. Yeah, that's interesting. No, no. Uh, pe people constantly bring up one Newsweek article right. from that time. And actually, it wasn't the only one. There were there were a fair number of articles. There were scientists who seriously believed uh, that uh, an ice age was coming, but they were a minority of scientists. Uh, there was also a minority who warned about global warming, and the vast majority said, sorry, more research on this is needed. Uh, we, we're, we're not we're not willing to make a definitive statement. Uh, and, and finally, in 1979, there was a consensus statement. Re really, the National Academy of Sciences reports, I'm not aware of any report by the National Academy of Science that ever got it thoroughly wrong. They, 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 they might have given higher priority things. But as far as I know, in the National Academy of Sciences Committee, because they are extremely cautious and conservative, and they understand that they need to be cautious and conservative. If they say that X is happening, you can be very sure that X is happening. And that was 1979. Before that, literally, and you, if you go even into the Newsweek articles, you'll find that the articles say, oh, you know, everybody be excited, come buy our magazine, look, there's going to be another ice age. And then the end of the article says, of course, many scientists disagree with this, and most of them say, we well, can't really say. Uh, on, on this topic of um, global warming versus cooling, there is one bit of scientific work that uh, I wanted to particularly highlight, and that's the, the Keeling curve. Uh, can you speak to that, Spencer? Okay, so we go back now to 1957 again. And as I said, uh, that was the point at which, for the very first time, somebody, namely Roger Revelle, the, the prominent oceanographer, realized that... Uh, the rise of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere could be a problem. But as I said, scientists don't like to repeat things. They like to corroborate it with some other thing. So he said, well, let's see if the carbon dioxide level in the atmosphere is actually rising. And as it happened, uh, he knew of another of a young postdoc in Southern California, which was where he was, a guy by the name of uh, Dave Keeling, a, a great gentleman, by the way. I, I interviewed him and he let me use his... Um, uh, go into his uh, files and so forth. So uh, I, I know quite a lot about his work. Uh, Dave Keeling loved to be outdoors. Uh, he was an outdoorsman, canoed, went under the mountains and so forth. So he had chosen as his postdoctoral project to uh, measure carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which gave him opportunities to go out to pristine locations like mountaintops and so forth. Uh, and he, he was the, by far the best person in the world who knew how to measure carbon dioxide. So uh, Ravel got some money to hire him to measure the carbon dioxide level. And Ravel's idea was, well, we'll measure it at a few very pristine places. We'll measure it in Antarctica. We'll measure it at the top of this uh, mountain volcano in Hawaii. And we'll measure what it is now in 1958. And then we'll come back in 20 or 30 years and see if it's gone up. Well, Keeling said Keeling was a fanatic for accuracy. All he ever wanted to do was measure things. He spent his entire career measuring things. He was the first person to spend his entire career on climate change only by measuring carbon dioxide. And Keeling managed to measure the change in two years. 
he found that in only two years, he was able to see the rise of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, and indeed the rise to exactly the extent that Ravel had predicted it would rise from his understanding of the oceans. And that was the beginning of the famous Keeling curve, which has risen ever since, and which, which we is now regarded as the uh, icon of global warming. And it was the not it was not Ravel's paper, which wasn't people didn't pay much attention to at the time. It was this rise of carbon dioxide, which convinced most scientists to take this seriously, because again, it was a visual demonstration that the human industry had become a geophysical force. We are more than volcanoes. Okay? We have more influence on the atmosphere than all the volcanoes of the world. It sounds like we have this story taking place over the late 20th century, where we are learning about the mechanisms for climate change. We're also taking measurements, noticing changes in um, concentration of greenhouse gases and forecasting out changes in temperature, other changes to climate. But of course, all of this matters insofar as it actually does damage or um, has an effect which people you know, experience. So I'm curious, when did climate scientists start thinking about calling for something like you know, political action? or just being worried about this? Okay, well, it takes two steps. First was the prediction of impacts, and then second was the question of what to do about it. So impacts were recognized at the start. Uh, already in 1957, before he published his paper, Ravel was before a congressional committee telling them that the Arctic Ocean could become ice-free, which at that time was particularly worrisome because the Russians were there. And that, as I think I can quote, that uh, Southern California and Texas could become real deserts. Uh, already that early, they understood the prospects for a mega drought in the southwestern United States. But the most obvious uh, thing was uh, uh, sea level rise. And by 1960, uh, there was a committee brought together that had together uh, all the experts on global warming, were about three of them, and put them together with people from agriculture and so forth. And they said, well, they didn't really know what all the impacts would be, but they could be pretty sure that the sea level was going to rise and the coastal cities would be inundated. And again, go back to the 19 Ravel and people like that, they said, when will this become obvious? And they, everybody from then on for the next decade said, well, there's a lot of variability in temperature, so it'll be around the start of the 21st century that we will begin to actually see the, the temperature rise and the impact. Now we, now we come to the question of when people began to uh, worry about it in policy terms. Well, th this, this really came to the fore during the energy crisis. Uh, there, there was the oil embargo uh, and, and uh, well, there, there were two oil crises, but you will remember in the, under the Carter administration in particular, there were, well, you won't remember, but uh, I remember, <laughs> there were long lines of people trying to get gasoline because the price of gas had shot up. Uh, so what were we going to do about that? Well, the Carter administration proposed to mine a lot more coal uh, and convert it into gasoline, sin fuels, and so forth, which was extremely dirty process in terms of carbon dioxide. And at this point, there were some scientists who said that is a bad policy. There were there were actually people uh, writing inside the Carter administration saying that, you know, you, you're going to doom our coastal cities. You know, Washington will be underwater if we follow this path. Uh, 
and there were also people saying, and this was already in the uh, 1960s, well, we want a lot of nuclear reactors, and there are many, many good reasons to have nuclear reactors, and reason number 15 on the list is they don't produce carbon dioxide. Now, and that, that's now come to the fore, but already back then, people were arguing for nuclear reactors on the basis that this was the best energy policy to follow. Well, the Carter administration, of course, and all subsequent administrations down to uh, until the Biden administration were perfectly happy to subsidize uh, coal and oil. Uh, but but if you go back to the Carter administration, you'll find out that already at that time, you are arguing against it. In terms of a consensus uh, scientific consensus, we have to move forward to 1988. Uh, in 1988, there were two significant events. One was that Jim Hansen went in front of Congress and said, global warming is here. Uh, it's time to stop waffling and say global warming is here. Most scientists didn't think it would show up until uh, around the year 2000, and most scientists didn't even admit that it formed in 2000. But Jim Hansen said it's already here. And he said it in the middle of a very hot summer, the hottest summer on record at that time with wildfires and droughts and so forth. Uh, so it attracted a lot of press attention. And this was the first time that you see global warming showing up in Calvin and Hobbes, and Little Orphan Annie and Dick Tracy and so forth. You know, not just on television, the things that people really read, uh, people started to talk about global warming. The second thing that happened in 1988 was that there was a big meeting of scientists, the International Meeting of Scientists uh, convened in Toronto, where they, the scientists had also tried to include a fair number of international political figures. And they came out, the, 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 the scientific assembly came out with the declaration that uh, it, it was time to start thinking about policy. And that in, in fact, uh, it, it was time to stop burning fossil fuels and as, as rapidly as possible to come to international agreements so that by the year 2000, uh, there would actually be less fossil fuels emitted than in uh, 1988. Now, actually, since, that, since 1988, we've emitted as, many, as much carbon dioxide as in the entire history of the human race before that. But the, the Toronto meeting was a, a consensus meeting of scientists with the, uh, with the agreement of a fair number of uh, international political people that it was time to start taking policy steps. So, so that's, that's, that's the point at which uh, the world failed to listen to this, what the scientists uh, you know, were saying. It seems to me like kind of sad that a lot of early climate action wasn't really driven by by climate concerns. It seems much more due to, as, as you kind of described, political uh, economy reasons, even if it is now paying uh, big climate dividends. But that, that kind of leads me to wonder whether there was anything we could have done more, or in particular scientists could have done more, to, to try and raise the alarm bells earlier or mobilize climate action sooner, given that it didn't seem maybe super pertinent on the on the political agenda. Well, we have a problem here, which is that people don't become scientists because they want to be interviewed on television. Okay? Uh, and ma many scientists, and the general attitude of scientists, I would say, up almost until 1988, was that the uh, role of the scientists is to find information and to describe it as accurately as possible with, with all the qualifications of we're not sure about this and we're a little more sure about that. 
we're 99% sure, but not 100% sure of this, that, and the other thing. And their job was to send this information up to the politicians or as perhaps down to the politicians. And it was up to the policymakers to act on this knowledge. It's a very rational way of looking at things, which of course is how scientists like to think the world operates. And I would say it's only been since the 19th. So, and there were scientists, uh, um, uh, Stephen Schneider comes to mind as, as, as one of the great heroes of people who made great attempts to warn people that uh, the climate could change and that it could change because of human influence. And he, he was uh, uh, much criticized by his colleagues. Jim Hansen, when he went out and told the press global warming is here, was, was subject to a substantial amount of criticism. And these things could actually influence careers if you were regarded as spending your time uh, talking on television when you really ought to be back in your laboratory writing papers. Now, these attitudes have changed as scientists saw that the policymakers are incapable of, of listening to them. And of course, this is a problem not only in um, climate, uh, but as, as we have seen in uh, many other areas of science as well. There's been the, the whole problems of politicization, which is a more recent problem. But uh, could scientists have done more? Of, of course they could have done more. Could policymakers have done more? Well, they, they're, they're the ones really to blame. Uh, but more than that, 1988 was not only a point at which uh, the scientists became politicized, but it was around that time that industry realized that uh, they were their, their profits were threatened. One way I want to reframe this question is that I think it just comes back to making decisions under uncertainty when you kind of don't have all the facts available. Like how alert should you be to these like potentially very catastrophic risks, given that there are still a lot of open questions and, and disagreements, perhaps? Um, I was kind of surprised by how quickly information actually traveled from the like scientific community to the political establishment. Uh, the Keeling Curve came out in 1960 and the presidential committee formed only a few years later. And I think LBJ included climate change in his address in 1965. So it's not that politicians were unaware of the risk that climate change posed. It seems to me that what is much more surprising or kind of depressing is that it took another 20 years for people to actually take real world uh, action. And I'm wondering if there's anything we could have done rationally before then. Well, we have to realize that there are also countervailing forces. For example, the realization that lead in gasoline was a problem. It took quite a while before the lead was removed from gasoline. In fact, I believe there's still one or two places where you can still breathe uh, leaded gasoline. So it takes a while for these things to work through the political system. But climate change is unique in this respect in that it uh, represents a mortal threat to the most powerful economic uh, configuration that has ever existed in the history of the human race. The fossil fuels industry is basically, uh, I don't know if it's as powerful as uh, China, but it probably has as powerful as Russia in world affairs, uh, but internationally, I mean, this is the basis of our economy and has been for a hundred years, everybody. Uh, everybody's livelihood, you know, if the price of gasoline goes up, uh, it makes an enormous difference in everybody's lives. So uh, this, this, it's, it's not like you're trying to get the lead out of gasoline. You're trying to change everything in our economy and people's lifestyles and so forth. And of course, people are going to resist this. And in particular, uh, there, there are uh, people uh, 
with control of tens of billions of dollars who are going to resist this, and, and they did so. And so this was uh, unprecedented and resulted in particular in unprecedented attacks on the scientists. You know, uh, there, there, there has always, you know, and when people wanted to take lead out of gasoline or when people wanted to uh, stop pesticides, you know, Rachel Carson was accused of being a hysterical woman and that kind of a thing. Uh, and their, their science was attacked as being sloppy and so forth. But the climate scientists have been attacked in a completely different way. Uh, completely, you know, even in the cigarette controversy, the tobacco controversy, the health scientists were not accused of being frauds, of being hoaxers, of being dishonest, of being out just for the money, uh, of, of being uh, communist, socialist uh, liars and so forth. They were not threatened. Uh, they, did, they did not receive uh, threatening emails and uh, on occasion have they need police protection. They, they did, did not feel so uh, uh, assaulted and demeaned that they contemplated suicide. They did not face lawsuits even from governments to, to get at their emails and so forth. All of these things did happen to climate scientists and are still happening. And is the suggestion that the reason climate scientists receive so much opprobrium compared to, for instance, doctors who are warning about tobacco because they are making suggestions which run so counter to such enormous moneyed interests that the kind of stakes are too high or something? Exactly. Got it. Billions of dollars, literally billions of dollars have been spent to lobby, to uh, advertising, uh, uh, in, in entire television and radio networks uh, devote a substantial amount of their effort to demeaning climate science. Um, so it seems to me like one of the great political successes, if you can call it political, with respect to climate change, is the IPCC. Um, I have a bunch of questions, but maybe you could begin by just explaining how it came to be. Okay, so the IPCC. Okay, so there was a Toronto meeting in 1988, and uh, politicians were horrified. Here's these bunch of scientists. We didn't appoint them. Who are these people to tell us what we should do with our policy? And in, in the meanwhile, the scientists themselves were realizing that they needed some kind of a better unified voice than just having an occasional meeting and ensure pronouncements. So the World Meteorological Organization and the United Nations Economic, uh, sorry, United Nations uh, Environmental Program under a remarkable fellow uh, uh, Egyptian uh, and uh, decided that they should get together some kind of a joint thing. And then the, the nations said, yo, this is great and we'll appoint the people, okay? Uh, so we're not going to have the bunch of scientists appointing the people. We're going, we're going to appoint national representatives. And what's more, we're going to insist that no official summary policy statement be issued. You know, not, nothing that would Im, Im, uh, impact on policy be issued, except with unanimous consent, with the consensus of all the representatives of all the world's governments. Okay, so this is obviously a recipe for paralysis and was probably meant to be. But uh, most of the representatives were, in fact, scientists. I mean, even if, if you came from Saudi Arabia or whatever, well, they make, I think Saudi Arabia sent a lawyer, but, you know, Nigeria and so forth, they sent the chief of their weather bureau or whatever. They were overwhelmingly scientists. And when push came to shove, uh, 
you get you get together and you talk with people in rooms for hours on end and and eventually the the representatives from Saudi Arabia were just too embarrassed to you know keep lying and and so one thing that has to be represented by consensus when you say consensus you don't mean that everybody votes yes you just uh say does everybody agree with this and if nobody stands up and says no then that's consensus and the representatives of Saudi Arabia and so forth were just they just at some point they couldn't bring themselves to stand up and say no when you know, they could water it down they could make it as anodyne as possible but at some point uh that the scientists just by hammering away at the logic for weeks on end and arguing and presenting evidence they just beat them down and so the ipcc has been remarkably successful in coming out very you know it was, it was always very weasel wordy and full of qualifications and so forth but in the end they 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 they, they simply couldn't, nobody could deny the, the scientific truth. So it's been remarkably successful. That's, that's the other way it's been successful. It's been remarkably successful at mobilizing and organizing the science, and it's been remarkably successful at producing these definitive statements uh, about the grave danger that we're in. Increasingly, of course, frantic, you know, every, 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 every five years they come out with a statement that's, uh, you know, the, basically, you know, the, the, the last, you know, in the 21st century, the the IPC statements boiled down to we we told you so. When are you going to get off and you know start work, do what you have to do? You asked earlier about this idea of um, um, uh, marginal possibilities, and people don't want to take them into account. Uh, the IPCC has been conservative in the sense of the word of not wanting to sound too radical or panic, you know, don't panic people and so forth. You know, we want, we want to be very quiet. Now, if you're a military planner, the conservative thing is to imagine the worst case. Okay, that's how military planning goes, okay? To them, uh, it's not conservative to ignore the worst case. It's, it's just ridiculous, okay? So, so the IPCC was conservative in the wrong sense. But they're not conserved. That's a conservative anymore. I mean, they, I, I think they've come to the middle of the road in terms of the warnings they're issuing, which are pretty hair raising. Other people issue more hair raising warnings, but the IPCs, the CCs warnings are certainly uh, enough to impel action. Just hearing you say that, it does occur to me that it's not clear what conservative does or should mean in this context. Maybe it means that you should pay more attention to these tail risks or worst case scenarios yes um, exactly maybe it means less yeah yeah can you maybe take us up to speed spencer on what these successive uh ipcc reports have been saying so i think the first time they met was in 1990 yeah they didn't say much in 1990 it was in 1995 that they first said that uh, there's a um discernible global warming they, they they spent an entire day arguing over that and finally, the Saudis got worn down, and like they, they they went through every possible word. There's a there's a nice story there, but anyway, they 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 finally agreed on discernible. Yeah, and so with these kind of five year cycles of uh, IPCC reports, as as you've kind of earlier described, have there been any like key changes in the IPCC's understanding of of the science and yeah, how we should think about uh, climate change? Okay, the, the the question is one of what's called tipping points. Okay, a tipping point is when you get a positive feedback. Positive doesn't mean good. It means it's a vicious circle. Uh, an example 
being that as we haven't talked about methane as a greenhouse gas, but uh, methane is an important greenhouse gas and it can be produced by uh, uh, microbes in tundra. And as the tundra warms up, more methane comes out. So more methane, more heating, more heating, more uh, more more tundra warming, more tundra warming, more methane comes up. Uh, is there a tipping point at which this process becomes irreversible? Okay, that's one example. Okay, it was first mentioned in its 2001 report. The IPCC mentioned what they called large-scale discontinuities in the climate system. And they estimated that we might start risking it if we reached a global warming of four degrees above pre-industrial or about what a little over one degree now. And they thought there were a high risk starting around five or six degrees. Now that was 2001 and people began to find more and more ways there might be tipping points. So in, let's see, in 2015, the IPCC said, well, there might be a threshold moderate risk of two degrees and high risk of four degrees, not five or six degrees, but four degrees comes the 2018 report, and they saw a risk at 1.5 degrees, which means we could conceivably hit a tipping point by the middle of this century. And their, their 2021 report uh, said roughly the same thing, that any, any, in fact, at any time now, uh, the, the tipping points cannot be ruled out. That, that was their that, that was their uh, agreed upon phrase that uh, uh, at any any point hitting a tipping point, which would lead to irreversible changes, cannot be ruled out. The example they gave was a, a ice sheet collapse in Antarctica, which some scientists think has already begun and could be a two meter sea level rise by the end of the century. Mm, I, I think there is such an interesting counterintuitive di dynamic at play here, where normally you would expect that as you do more research, you should you know, have your, your confidence interval shrink just because you're presumably uh, better informed. But what it sounds you're describing here is actually the opposite, that the more research you do, the more tipping points you become aware of. And so your confidence interval actually uh, increases a huge amount. Is that like roughly a right way of, of kind of putting this? Uh, this, this? This has been the bane of the computer model is in particular. Uh, you get more computer power, you can do much more, you can do finer, and you can investigate processes sooner. For example, cloud processes, okay? Uh, it, it's, uh, uh, it, it, clouds are just incredibly uh, um, complicated. And as you add more cloud processes and, and compute them more, you don't get greater certainty. Uh, the, the, the uh, you know I I told I told you that the Charney Committee got uh, three degrees plus or minus fifty percent that is from two point five to four point five degrees. The latest computer models have a higher range of consistent uh, uh, uncertainty, uh, especially at the upper level. They might they, they, some of the computer models get you a warming with doubling carbon dioxide, which I repeat is in this century of like six degrees. Which, which would be a total catastrophe. And, and so uh, at, at this point, the paleoclimatologists come to the rescue and they, they say that can't happen. You know, it just just doesn't happen that way. And so the IPCC putting in paleo, and, and also by now, you know, we, we have a uh, almost a hundred years of record or uh, well, certainly 50 years of record of warming and 
rising carbon dioxide so we can see how much has actually happened. So they put all that together and say, well, okay, it, 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 the rise can be anywhere from uh, two degrees to four or five degrees maybe with doubling carbon dioxide, but ho hopefully uh, in the lower level rather than the upper level. To which some people will reply, well, that's all very well to use the geological record, but we're now getting into a realm uh, that nobody has ever seen before, namely, you know, increasing carbon dioxide, you know, doubling, you know, at, at this breakneck pace that has never happened before. And so, you know, we, we, we really can't be very sure of anything. Uh, as, as we get into this new regime that, that, that has never been observed. So yes, the, the uncertainty has actually increased over time, uh, which doesn't mean that our knowledge has not increased. Our knowledge of the uncertainty has increased. If, you, if, you're, if you're walking down the street, uh, you want to have knowledge of the holes that you might step into, okay? That's, that's better knowledge. Yeah, so we were unduly certain in the past, and now we know that we ought to have been less certain because yes. we know more. Yeah, that's that's been the story from the beginning. That's right. So I would actually love to get stuck into this topic of, of tipping points more, which, uh, as you've pointed out, has just been receiving a lot more attention by by scientists and the the IPCC. So can you walk us through perhaps what these like main tipping points are, what what they look like, and what kind of threat they they actually pose? If you go back to the early days of the IPCC, there was a suspicion that the uh, climate system was chaotic and that there were good things that could tip it off. But there was just a lot of speculation of what might be. And in fact, two of the things that were widely talked about were a shutdown of the North Atlantic circulation, which had certainly happened in the past, and what somebody called the clathrate gun. The clathrates are sort of a type of ice, if you like, that has a lot of methane in it that's in the bottom of the seabed. And if it warms up, then the thought was the methane would come bubbling out. And uh, more methane in the atmosphere makes for more heat, and then, then you get a feedback, uh, and maybe all of a sudden you'd have a runaway of methane and everything would get fiendishly hot. Both of those eventually turned out to be uh, false. Uh, the North Atlantic circulation can shut down, and in fact, uh, there's some indication that it is shutting down now, but it seems that uh, it takes a long time to change the motion of the entire ocean full of water. So uh, the best guess is now that if it does shut down, it'll take uh, decades at any rate to do so. But uh, it's a rather serious thing, and one of one of the unfortunate things, but not a sudden tipping point, just something that appears to be happening. And the clathrate gun turned out to not, not be so because it takes a long time for heat to get all the way down to the bottom of the seabed. And the methane, as it came bubbling up, would probably get dissolved in the water anyway. But meanwhile, other uh, tipping points showed up, and those we take much more seriously. Uh, and those are now subjects of very intense uh, studies. And the one that I think the IPCC is most concerned about is the West Antarctic Ice Sheet, which was pointed out very early as a possible tipping point. This was one of the first ones that were of concern. Uh, and so it's always been a concern, always on the IPCC's mind. But they discounted as something that could happen during the 21st century. And I think most people 
Uh, many people still think it's not likely to happen very rapidly in the 21st century. But ice is very complicated stuff. And it seems like every two years is a new study of how the ice can disintegrate more rapidly than it was thought. In the last uh, 10 or 15 years, there have been several things that turned up that were not really expected, which makes it likely uh, that, there, or makes it possible that the ice sheets can disintegrate much more rapidly than people had thought, which would, uh, it, it's not exactly a tipping point for the whole climate system, it's just a tipping point for the ice. But some experts now think that the disintegration of the West Antarctic ice sheet and possibly, and probably of a good bit of the Greenland is irreversible, but that it will take uh, centuries at least for the full effects to be shown, but we are now doomed to have uh, sea level rise. And in terms of rapid things, there seems it's possible that bad things will happen uh, before the end of the century, that is to say during the lifetimes of children who are now alive, that there will be episodes of very rapid sea level rise, which has happened in the past, in the geological past. We do find episodes of very rapid rise during the space of less, of, less than a century uh, so that there's no guarantee that it can't happen. Could you give a layperson kind of explanation as to why this like ice sheet melting is a tipping point or could occur like really rapidly over decades? Okay. Like why wouldn't it be the case that it just like gradually melts as temperatures kind of rise? Right. Okay. Well, uh, for Greenland, it's fairly straightforward as the ice uh, streams start to move, it becomes easier for them to move because they scour their uh, bottoms. And uh, as water melts on the top, it finds its way to the bottom and lubricates it. And in addition, over the long term, as uh, Greenland gets lower, it gets to lower altitudes where it's warmer. So this, this is the true tipping point kind of a thing. The lower it gets, the warmer the ice is. It gets into warmer things. And so unless we are actually able to reverse the whole greenhouse effect and pump carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, there's no way to stop it from going, but it takes a thousand years to melt the whole thing. So eventually the sea level will be much higher, but that takes a long time. West Antarctica is more complicated. Uh, there is this effect as the stuff starts moving faster and faster, it gets easier for it to move faster. But there's also what's called grounding points. The ice streams in West Antarctica are held back by the floating ice shelves that kind of act like a cork in a bottle. Uh, and what keeps the ice shelves where they are is they are grounded. Uh, there's a certain point where they touch the bottom of the seabed. The problem is that behind that grounding point, it gets deeper. So if they melt back past the grounding point, then there's nothing to stop it. And the whole thing starts sliding down into the ocean. Uh, so the sea level is getting higher, which lifts them up. And more seriously, and this is a fairly recent discovery, uh, the, as the oceans get warmer, the warm water goes underneath and starts melting the stuff from underneath. They had to send a submarine, uh, a robot submarine underneath to uh, verify that this is happening. And then there are these other possible things that happen. Uh, as it breaks back, there's uh, the possibility that as the cliffs get higher and higher, they become too high to support themselves. And so they just naturally fall down. And then the cliff behind that uh, is too high and falls down. And the whole thing could work its way back in the space of decades and release the thing. So this is why there's a possibility. And as the 
uh, IPCC very uh, cautiously puts it, a possibility that cannot be ruled out that a West Antarctic ice sheet uh, collapse will come and raise the sea level by meters before the end of the century. Uh, and in fact, if we look into the geological past, there have been times in the past when the sea level rose by several meters in much less than the pace of a century. So we don't know what the probability of that is. Let us hope it's a low probability, but it cannot be ruled out. Yeah. And I guess the, the point worth emphasizing there is that like even, you know, what sounds like a few meters or whatever of sea level rise would in fact displace millions, if not uh, like hundreds of millions of people, if uh, like I, I remember. Yeah, you raise the sea level a foot in most places that moves the shoreline back something like 100 feet. Uh, it's, it's, it's no trivial effect, uh, particularly since uh, humans like the seashore uh, and uh, the human race is concentrated around the seashore, partly because we like the fish and partly because uh, ocean transport is a very efficient way of getting stuff around. So a bunch of world commerce is located on the seashore. So there's a tremendous uh, uh, part of our civilization is located within a couple of meters of sea level. So that's, that's one. And the other one that deeply concerns people is biological. And there's a couple of things here. The one that's attracted most attention, which has been a concern uh, actually for quite a long time, is the dieback of tropical forests. Uh, the Amazon has gotten the most attention, although the same thing apparently can happen in the Congo Basin too. Uh, the Amazon gets rain mainly because the water transpires from the trees. Uh, well over half of the rain that falls into the Congo Basin comes from just the, the moisture from the trees themselves. Uh, as the trees start to die off, uh, which can happen in three ways. Uh, one is because it's being deforested, uh, and that's actually the worst effect. The second is that uh, things get warmer, so trees just don't like the warmth. And the third thing is that uh, there's periods of drought, and so it burns. And all of these things are happening. And it's pretty clear that if we allow this to continue, that by the end of the century, much of the Amazon will be converted to scrubland, uh, which has a, a couple of bad effects. Uh, one is that all those trees, when they're gone, uh, release their carbon into the air. Uh, and the other is that they're no longer taking up carbon. They, the rainforests have always been a sink for carbon, but in fact, already some of the Amazon basin is now a net source of carbon, partly because of climate change and partly because of deforestation. So this is a true feedback effect. You put more carbon dioxide in the air and things get warmer, so the rainforests have a harder time. The other problem, which is similar, is in soils. Uh, soils currently are a very important net sink of carbon. A lot of the carbon, you know, a lot of the carbon that we put into the atmosphere doesn't stay there. The oceans take up a lot, and uh, a lot of it is taken up by vegetation and particularly by soils and bacteria in the soil. Now, and again, this, this is similar to the clathrate gun, but it was generally recognized uh, that this is where the real problem lies. And this is that in uh, soils and particularly wetlands, wetlands can be uh, in the rainforests, they can be peat, uh, they can be tundra. And tundra is the most concerning part because tundra uh, is a very nice 
way to take up carbon because mosses and lichens and stuff grow on the surface and they take up carbon. And then as it gets deeper, the bottom gets frozen because if it's far enough north, then you go deep enough, the, net, the average temperature is below freezing. So it's frozen. This is permafrost. As the world warms, the permafrost melts. This is a very familiar phenomenon now. People in Alaska and Siberia, their houses are collapsing because their foundations are built on permafrost. The very forests are collapsing. Trees lean drunkenly as the permafrost no longer supports them. And as it warms up, the bacteria uh, in these frozen things start to act and get active, and they emit carbon dioxide and methane. And in fact, this can be observed. People see the methane bubbling up and, and coming out. Uh, so this is a true feedback effect. More methane, the world gets warmer. The world gets warmer. More of the permafrost melts and so forth. Uh, and this is currently a subject of immense study because, again, as with ice, it's a very complicated system. Uh, as the permafrost melts, uh, some of it slumps uh, and it forms lakes. And then this becomes an especially good place for the bacteria to get to work and produce their methane. But on the other hand, uh, changes, it gets warmer, changes happen to the soil biota, and there are things that may make uh, some of the biological systems take up carbon better. So it's very complex, and it's a study of literally thousands of people are working now on the questions of soil, but there's a significant risk here of setting off a feedback thing that ultimately, frankly, may be unstoppable until the world warms up to, you know, five degrees C, uh, not in this century, but uh, soon enough to matter for us uh, in the 22nd century, it may already reach uh, unsustainable levels. So th this, this is, uh, for many people, the most scary thing is the methane feedback in uh, tundra and other uh, wetlands. It, it strikes me as well, um, especially on the the point you made before about um, forest diebacks in the Amazon, that this contrasts like uh, quite starkly with earlier on in our conversation when we were talking about what people hoped were previous like kind of stabilization mechanisms. That if there's like more CO two in the air, then you'll have more plant growth, and that will kind of like offset or balance it. That in this case, just by virtue of the climate system being like very complex, it can actually work the other way around in in these like really counterintuitive ways. That's right. Well, actually, uh, so so far, it, the fertilization effect has worked, and we'd be considerably worse off now, except that, in fact, there has been a good bit of greening. Uh, and the one of the realizations there was, which, of course, some people understood early on, uh, is it's a, it's a basic premise of agriculture that uh, fertilization can only work up to a certain point. At some point, you, the plants are taking up all the carbon dioxide that they can, and it's something like nitrogen or phosphorus or one of the other things that limits their growth. And, uh, you know, it, it, it depends on the forest and so forth, but it's clear that before the end of the century, uh, the fertilization effect, in fact, already the fertilization effect is slowing down. Uh, that's partly because forests are dying and burning and so forth. But uh, beyond that, by the end of the century, we won't get much fertilization effect because the um, biology, the, the plants will be taking up all the carbon dioxide they can usefully use, and their growth will be limited by other things like <laughs> water availability and temperature as the climate changes. So you mentioned uh, trees and plants as a way of drawing down CO2. And um, one point I guess you can make is, well, eventually trees die, and when they die, they decompose and 
release some of that CO2 back into the atmosphere, unless they're properly buried or whatever, right? Um, so yeah, is that a really significant factor? Is that a reason to be relatively less excited about, you know, planting forests and so on for climate reasons? Well, yes, 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 and no, because uh, uh, the oh, certainly the main thing is to do something now, now, now. So trees are extremely useful for that, and, and so are grasses and so forth. And the other thing is, if you get a if you make your forest healthier, then a lot of stuff gets stored in the soil. It's not only on wetlands, but a, a, a forest, uh, even when the trees die, some of it winds up as soil and gets permanently stored. And the same thing is true for grasslands and peat and so forth. So that it's it's not it's not, not entirely uh, uh, limited that way. It does help. Got it. So here's another thing I uh, want to try asking about. Um, seems like much of the expected badness of climate change comes from the unknowns. Um, I guess you've been talking about the known unknowns here, right? Uh, the parameters we don't quite know the value of yet. Um, but also maybe there are unknown unknowns, right? Like entire mechanisms that we're only kind of dimly aware of because, um, I don't know, there are maybe features of warming today that are unprecedented in the paleoclimate record in Earth's history. So I guess the question is something like, how confident can we be in our current models that we're not missing some especially worrying uh, mechanism? Uh, that that's right. Feed feedback mechanisms. Uh, uh, the the climate community had a great scare uh, a couple of years ago uh, when the uh, the models, uh, some of the very best and most sophisticated models, started coming up with uh, predictions of future warming that could get to. Uh, three degrees, four degrees, even five degrees. Their, their very best models uh, seem to be predicting the possibility of some kind of a runaway, which which had to do with clouds. Uh, and it, in fact, if some some people showed actually that indeed, if you get hot enough, then the clouds sort of disappear; they evaporate, right? If the atmosphere gets hard, hot enough, then uh, you you stop having clouds. So that since the reflection of uh, sunlight from clouds is a major thing that keeps the Earth uh, at its present temperature. If you lose the clouds, then you're you're, you're little you're toast. Uh, it does seem, however, that uh, that won't happen unless we got a lot warmer. And really, the only thing that gave people confidence that they were doing the clouds wrong in these models was that they looked into other aspects of uh, other forms of evidence uh the climates of the past uh, we have pretty good evidence now that climates uh, in the distant past and we have now measurements of climates from half a dozen different geological eras didn't warm up uh, to the extent that these uh what they call the hot climate models got and also uh we now have like 50 years of experience of the world getting warmer and carbon dioxide rising. So you can play various games with that and see how the climate system actually has responded. So all of this is well and good and it gives us pretty good confidence that um, the, the climate models you know, as, uh, you know, as checked against uh, actual past climates and so forth aren't all that bad. The difficulty is that 
never in the geological past and have we experienced uh, rise so fast uh, and, and that the climate models don't have anything really good to calibrate themselves against when we get up above one and a half degrees. So there's always the possibility that there's something in the climate models uh, that, that might go bad. And the way the IPCC accounts for this, and you know, hundreds of people have argued for you know, many, many hours on, on Zoom and so forth and in personal meetings as to how to best explain and uh, report all of this. And they, they say what's uh, likely, which is a sort of 67% uh, confidence limits, one sigma, and what's very likely, which is the 95% confidence limits. So it, if, if we believe all, the, all these smart people are, are corrected and thinking right, which of course they may not be, then uh, you, you look at their graphs, they really don't like to say this openly, they just say cannot be ruled out and so forth. But if you look into the graphs and tables in the IPCC reports, you find about a 5% chance that uh, under current policies, you know, or you know, the, the kind of policies that we expect as solar energy rolls out at about the present rate and that kind of a thing. In other words, un, under, in, unless we make really radical policy changes, then there's about a 5% chance of going above four degrees. Now, four degrees is already very bad. Four degrees is already uh, a point at which uh, we probably, we can't have a civilization as prosperous and stable as we have now. And we should also say that's presumably four degrees by the end of this century, right? Uh, not four degrees uh, like in general. Yeah, yeah that's right. We're, we're talking about the end of the century. So there's about a 5% chance probability of going above to four degrees C or above, you know, once you're above that, who knows where it stops, five degrees or whatever. So a 5% chance, and Ramanathan, who's one of the great uh, climate scientists, my favorite, Ramanathan says, you would not get on an airplane that had a 5% chance of crashing. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think it's um, the, the, the point you made there at the beginning as well is, I think, uh, really underrated and, and, and really kind of like scared me when I think I... I first came across it, which is that if a model tells you that, you know, this is generating to like catastrophic failures, then it's really hard to tell whether that is like actually true or whether it's just because your model is like bad and not really having a kind of like reference point is, is really difficult there. And I think um, that also seems to be one of the like main arguments for um, this year's like IPCC report on relying, as you mentioned, these like kind of multiple lines of evidence and checking models with the uh, paleoclimatic. Um... Yeah, there's actually, there's actually been, uh three or four instances when the paleoclimatologists and the climate modelers couldn't agree. And it turned out that the paleontologists were wrong, that the climate modelers had been unable to tweak their models uh, to uh, match what the paleoclimatologists said. And in fact, the models were right. So it gives you confidence in the climate modelers that they couldn't force their models into the in, in, into the wrong mold. Now, this doesn't say that the hot models are correct because there's plenty of models that aren't too hot, but uh, it's worrisome. We do not understand clouds. And in particular, we have no way to understand how clouds will act at two degrees C because we have not been able to observe clouds in the Mesozoic era. So we don't really know what the clouds will do. And uh, it, uh, it's, it's, so there, there's just always that 5% chance. I'll, I'll go along with them. I, I don't have any reason to say anything different from 5%. It's 5% chance that we're on an airplane and it's going to crash. 
Yeah, I, I want to ask about that, um, I guess, kind of like specifically as well. So we, we were talking before about this chance of being above um, four degrees. But one thing that seems to like really capture um, like public concern uh, as well is whether climate change can like directly lead to an extinction event. So not just one that is like um, awful for, for large um, like parts of humanity, but could like potentially, you know, lead to um, like entire global um, human extinction. I'm just like wondering what the like climatic uh the, the climate evidence is to like assigning um credence to to these outcomes so i know there's like talk about runaway greenhouse gas effects i think you mentioned the the cloud breakup before as well um yeah like what's your take there we're fairly confident that the earth has a mode which is the dinosaur mode where it's warm all the way up to the poles okay uh well the dinosaurs survived the mammals survived that human beings are very tough uh, so I don't think we're talking about the extinction of the human race. But on the other hand, uh, I, I, I think we're talking about a point where the human race cannot maintain anything uh, like the level of civilization that we have now. Uh, the, the, even at, at that thing, even the very rich people who probably think they can survive and protect themselves by uh, having their private islands or whatever, even the billionaires who... Uh, whose, whose way of thinking is, is really very different from ours, even they will not be able to survive uh, in, in that kind of a planet, the, the 5% planet. Yeah, I guess it seems more plausible to me that in those 5% worlds, um, this kind of climate breakdown just acts like a, a factor on all sorts of other things. Um, so even if it wouldn't directly cause human extinction, it's still bad news and it still would raise the chance of some other channel by which human extinction might get caused or something similarly bad. Yeah, okay, we're not talking about the extinction of the human race. People are extraordinarily tough. Uh, we are talking about the end of everything that we care about. So we've been talking about the history of climate change science for a while now. It might be worth taking a bit of time to look forwards. Um, here's a question I'm interested in. Um, yeah, curious if you have thoughts on major ways you see policymakers getting it wrong that is misunderstanding climate change and i'm less interested in climate denialism because sure that that's wrong-headed i'm more interested in like well-intentioned errors kind of subtle errors that are harder to pick up on well there's always the belief that things will be in the future will be similar to things in the past uh and you would think that <laughs> by, by the, the last century would have showed people to abandon that but it's always very hard to, uh, you know, you probably have to be 80 years old like me to realize how vastly things can change in 80 years. So, uh, so that, that, that's, that's number one. People, uh, people have a tendency, you know, that this has been studied extensively, people live on the slopes of volcanoes, okay? Uh, the volcano hasn't erupted in my lifetime, so this is a safe place to live. People, you know, people build nuclear reactors uh, like Fukushima in a place where there's uh, a record of thousand-year tsunamis. And, you know, that they just didn't bother to think that if there was a thousand, you know, every thousand years there's a tsunami, maybe this is not the right place to build a re reactor. Or if, if so, that we should figure out what to do if we get one of these thousand-year tsunamis. So that people tend to just not like to imagine catastrophic outcomes. So that, that's one problem. The second problem is just the very familiar problem 
of people having motivations for dealing with things on the short-term. Politicians uh, work on a time scale of the next election, or maybe they're far-sighted two or three elections ahead. Uh, most uh, captains of industry, uh, they don't look to the next quarterly report, but they certainly don't look, you know, the CEO doesn't expect to be in office, you know, there more than five or 10 years. So that's about their uh, time scale. So this is just the, the way our society is structured. People have short time scales. Yeah, both those things seem right to me. And both of them strike me as climate agnostic, actually. <laughs> um, is there, Spencer, I'm, I'm curious, I guess I'm curious, kind of following up on that question, is there any way that you would see um, climate policy being like tangibly different to, to how it is now if you felt that people listened more to the science or so? So again, maybe like independently of... Um, um, you know, addressing this concern or addressing climate change is a generally a much more urgent and, and important priority, but like um, maybe perhaps as well, like qualitative shifts from supporting one set of policies as opposed to another. I think what people need to understand is that we need to build out uh, an industrial system as large as the entire fossil fuel system, which is an enormous system. And we need to replace, you know, the, the system that has been the foundation of the industrial economy for the last century and which has enormous investments. It can be done. The IPCC in its most recent report very clearly shows that it can be done in a wartime. We can afford to do anything that we are capable of doing. Okay. The, if, if, if we have the people and the technical ability to do it, then it never, never mind how it's financed, we can do it. And not only that, but if we take the amount of money that is now being spent on subsidizing fossil fuels, not, not paying for fossil fuels, but the extra subsidies and the health costs of their pollution and so forth, if we stop spending that on fossil fuels, that is more than enough money to pay for the industrial transformation that is necessary. So it's, it's not a scientific question. It's not a technical question. It's wholly and entirely a political question of reallocating our resources, not finding resources, new resources, not inventing new technologies, just reallocating our resources uh, in, in a way that will uh, save us from disasters. So therefore, it's a very good investment. It's the best possible investment we can make. Um, let's talk about that enormous effort to electrify and decarbonize. Um, I think it'd be a missed opportunity not to just get at least your very quick impressions on some of the means by which people are suggesting we do this. Um, so consider this a kind of quick fire round. Uh, but first of all, if you're game, I'm curious if you have thoughts about how something like uh, the idea of negative emissions, that is direct air capture, might slot into this. Okay, well, the first thing we have to do is uh, capture the carbon dioxide that's being emitted from fossil fuel plants. That's expensive, but it's not all that expensive. Unfortunately, though, all the technologies that have been tried to do it have not worked out very well, but there's a lot of research underway right now and you should just capture it directly so long as you're by, uh, doing fossil fuels and also other places to capture it from like cement plants and so forth. Now, as for negative emissions, actually taking out from the atmosphere, that's a very hard haul. Uh, and again, to do that would require building out an industry as large as the entire fossil fuel industry. So uh, it, it's well worth pursuing a research on that and hopefully technological breakthroughs. There's certain areas where it's clearly uh, economically 
viable, such as improving the health of our forests. And there's a lot you can do in agriculture to store carbon better in soil, which you need to do anyway, because frankly, we're, we're eating up our soil. Uh, we're depleting uh, the stock of carbon in our soil at a very rapid rate. I'm, I'm talking about on a global basis to a point where entirely aside from climate change, <clears throat> we're going to run into uh, trouble with keeping our soils fertile. So there's, there are ways which are economically uh, viable for storing carbon in our soil, which we need to do anyway. So th these are these are fairly clear and obvious ways to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. But it's not enough. Uh, we're, the, the whole idea of net zero uh, is 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 kind of a diversion from the enormous effort that we need to undertake in order not to put it there in the first place. Obviously, it's much easier not to put it there in the first place than it is to roll out some kind of tremendous industry to pull it back out. So, so uh, what do we do? Obviously, electrification, uh, solar and wind are already, generally uh, speaking, competitive with fossil fuels. Uh, there are well-known problems in rolling out, rolling them out, and getting enough rare earths and so forth. So people need to uh, attack these problems very vigorously. Uh, there are environmental problems with these. These are all technically soluble. And again, the IPCC has you know hundreds of pages of explaining how we do these things. There are problems with uh, solar and wind power, which are already becoming available. Uh, here in uh, some parts of the United States and especially in Western Europe, which is that past a certain point, you can't uh, just drive your electricity from wind and solar alone because there, there's days in the winter with no sun, no wind and so on, you can't do it. So uh, that, that means batteries and there's a lot of research being done on batteries. The technology is not there yet to do it economically. Yeah, yeah. And I guess I'll, I'll flag to listeners as well that we, I think, have done episodes on, on some of these technologies uh, as well and yeah. obstacles there. Yeah, it's not there yet. But, but uh, the, the, so the, the other alternative, which at one time people thought was going to be the complete solution to global warming, is nuclear reactors. And that, that's, as you're aware, a long story on which I've spent the other half of my <laughs> working career. And I'm I'm very keen to to move on to that in a second. But just before, one thing I'm I'm curious to hear maybe your your quick take on I guess given the the science implications and um, especially maybe like the the relevance for like these terrorist concerns is like geoengineering or this kind of idea of um, pumping sulfates and stuff into the into the atmosphere. Do you have a sense of um, yeah like whether this should be considered or what um, yeah the science there is at the moment? Yeah, geoengineering, of which there are many varieties, but the uh, cheapest and most likely variety is putting a fleet of airplanes in the air to spread sulfites around to reflect uh, sunlight off, uh, was proposed very early and very early was found to be economically viable. And uh, people recommend doing research on it in case, you know, there, there might be some way to do it reasonably. But it, it has uh, severe problems. Uh, who is going to do this? Uh, who is going to be trusted to do this? Uh, it, there's an interesting history, actually, in rainmaking, where people uh, got involved in rainmaking. 
And the problem was that if you make rain on one guy's farm, then that uh, the, the guy on the farm next door didn't get rain on complains that you were stealing from him. People were actually going out with shotguns shooting at rain-making airplanes and so forth. Who was going to decide uh, whose climate gets better? Because inevitably, uh, putting sulfates in the air is not the same as taking carbon dioxide out of the air. That's a totally different thing. Uh, and because of the unpredictabilities of the climate system, we can't even be sure what it will do. But it seems entirely likely that if India tries to cool itself off by putting sulfates, that the, uh, the result will be the monsoon uh, and the rains in China fail or vice versa. And so we're now talking about uh, uh, causes for war, for actual war of, you know, one, one party wrecking the other party's thing. So clearly you need an international regime, uh, an agreement on how to do this. And uh, if you can do that, it's clearly much easier to make an, an international regime to stop putting the stuff in the air in the first place. The, the second problem is the, uh, that there's even been a good novel written about this termination effect. What happens if you stop doing it? Uh, you, you clearly, to keep it going, you have to keep putting the sulfates in the air indefinitely. Uh, and the longer you do it, the more you rely on the sulfates. And if something like, for example, a war stops people from doing it, then all of a sudden, instead of the climate rising by two degrees over the course of the century, it rises by two degrees over the course of three years. Uh, so you've, you've, you've basically ruined civilization by trying to do this and then for one reason or another, failing to keep it up. So most people think geoengineering is a terrible idea. And you should, you know, a lot of people think you shouldn't even talk about it because it gives people an out. Uh, there's many people who think, oh, there's a technological solution. All we have to do is have magical batteries. All we have to do is magical geoengineering. And that solves the problem. So we can just go on building coal-fired plants. So people feel that geoengineering shouldn't even be talked about. And there's other people who say, well, let's keep studying it. Maybe we'll find some way we can do it successfully. So I have no objection to research, but I do have a great objection to thinking that geoengineering uh, is by any means uh, likely to be able to solve our problem. Last technology, I'd be curious to hear your opinion on, um, that is nuclear fission. Well, this of course is a long story. Let, let me just say <laughs> where, let me say a word about the Fukushima disaster, okay? There was hope for a revival of the nuclear industry. Actually, the nuclear industry is doing quite well, thank you. The Chinese and the Russians are exporting uh, nuclear reactors. All are, Well, the Russians were, but anyway, the Chinese are exporting nuclear reactors and building them as fast as they can. So the But in the West, there was hope for a nuclear uh, reactor renaissance. Uh, and that pretty much stopped after Fukushima. So what happened to Fukushima? Okay, they foolishly build a reactor in a zone where you can have a thousand year tsunami. And the, the, the thing had uh, an explosion, not a nuclear explosion, but a steam explosion and sprinkled radioactivity around the uh, vicinity. Uh, if nobody had known it was there or if the, the government, if, if opinions on nuclear energy had been different. Let's, let's say it had been a uh, some kind of a chemical uh, thing, okay? There's lots of times when chemical plants uh, go into problems or uh, waste dumps burn and toxic chemicals go into the atmosphere and so on. And then people may be evacuated temporarily. And in the case of Fukushima, uh, they might have evacuated people from the very 
hottest places and given iodine pills to people in the other area because the main problem is you get iodine and that uh, radioactive iodine comes out of fish and things and it gets into your thyroid and gives you a thyroid cancer, which is surgically treatable, but you don't want to have that happen. So if they had treated it as if it was a chemical kind of a thing, then uh, over the course of the next 50 years, there, nobody really knows there would have been anywhere from a few dozen to a, a, a few thousand extra treatable cancers, which would have been basically invisible uh, among the million or so cancers that normally occur. You probably could have winkled it out statistically, but it, 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 uh, in, in, in terms of daily life, it would have made no difference. What they did do, though, was they evacuated everybody and with where there was the slightest bit of additional radioactivity in the uh, in the air, and a result of which was 2,000 immediate deaths. 2,000 people died during the evacuation, uh, mostly old people yanked out of their homes, so forth. Uh, that wasn't the worst of it, though, because the refugees uh, have suffered greatly. We, we saw this also after Chernobyl, uh, when, when people are taken away from their jobs and their communities and scattered around the country, they experience all kinds of bad effects. There's depression, there's a rise in the suicide rates and alcoholism and so forth. A very serious increase in morbidity and even in mortality. But that wasn't the worst of the Kushushima thing. The worst thing was that the Japanese and the Germans immediately shut down a bunch of their reactors. And since probably the worst thing uh, for human life is not to have power or electricity and so on, that's very bad. So they burned coal instead. And the best estimate is that as a result of burning these coal plants, of course, coal puts pollution in the air, and the best estimate is 30,000, yes, that's 30,000 excess deaths since Fukushima and counting because these coal plants are still going. So the question comes, why aren't people scared of coal? Uh, why are people scared of radioactivity? People don't really know. There's a long story there, which is the subject of my books on nuclear fear. A very long story, but uh, briefly speaking, uh, in the first place, physically, you're worried about uh, radioactivity because radioactive atoms can cause cancer or, in some cases, mutations. Uh, coal also has stuff in the smoke. A lot of chemicals that can cause cancer mutations, and even atoms. Uh, for example, it turns out there's a lot of an unusual amount of arsenic in coal smoke and coal wastes. Well, people worry about plutonium because it has a half-life of 50,000 years. Arsenic also causes cancer mutations. It has an infinite half-life. It's an element. And we don't bury it underground. We, 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 we put it out into the atmosphere. So why aren't people worried about coal? Well, coal is familiar. We've been living with coal for hundreds of years. You know, So uh, coal is not associated with radioactive monsters. Homer Simpson does not work at a coal-fired plant, okay? Uh, coal has never been blamed for uh, things like Godzilla, you know, breathing fiery death rays from his, and uh, all kinds, there's, there's many, many things that are associated with uh, death rays, uh, uh, mutant monsters, and so forth. And also, as a physicist said very early in the game, it wasn't 10,000 tons of coal that they dropped in Hiroshima. When people think of nuclear reactors, they think of nuclear bombs, nuclear terrorists, uh, and, and the fact that, you know, if there's any way that civilization can be destroyed next week, it's 
because of the nuclear things. So there are all these prejudices around uh, nuclear energy, which uh, do not go around coal plants. And so people uh, live with coal. And finally, of course, uh, fossil fuels are the largest uh, economic power that has ever existed in the history of the human race. And there are literally trillions of dollars supporting the continuation of coal-fired plants and coal and oil and natural gas. Yeah. It does seem right to me that, at least in large part, one of the explanations of the kind of sorry state of nuclear power, at least in the West, is this bundle of associations, stories, imagery that gets attached to nuclear power and imagery of the atom in general. My original research when I was back as a postdoc was on the Curies, back at the very origins of uh, uh, atomic energy. And it was astonishing to find that a lot of the prejudices that we have about nuclear energy were already there. The idea of mute monsters and death rays and so forth was already there before people actually discovered fission in a way to release nuclear energy. It's a very old complex of ideas that got attached to nuclear energy, and there's nothing like it with coal or even with climate change. Nothing like this tremendous complex of uh, deep psychological and cultural factors. It's most unfortunate. Well, I'd really love to at least scratch away at certain parts of that story because, like you say, it's a fairly long one, but it's also a, <laughs> I think it's full of lessons. Um, maybe one place to start is this character, Frederick Soddy. Can you say something about him? Oh, Frederick Soddy was one of the people who discovered uh, transmutation of the elements. Uh, uh, Soddy and Rutherford was the key paper. Uh, and Soddy undertook to write about the meaning of it. Uh, Saudi and Rutherford immediately understood that when they found transmutation, that they were dealing with something that had a lot of cultural significance. Okay, so you can transmute, you, can, you can't turn lead into gold, but you can turn uranium into, you know, uranium does turn into lead over the long run. Elements do transmute, but transmutation, uh, that was what the alchemists did. Okay, so what were the alchemists? Well, the alchemists, culturally speaking, were very much related to sorcerers, to Faust, to mad scientists. All, all of these things, when you talk about transmutation, immediately comes to mind. Transmutation involves very deep things. It involves the, the old alchemists weren't only concerned with transmuting lead into gold. They, they saw this as a spiritual quest, uh, the descent of the matter into, um, uh, into the, its primitive, uh, messy state, and then reforming into gold was like a spiritual quest of reforming the spirit. Uh, it was like the apocalypse where, you know, the world comes to an end and then is reborn into a golden age. So th there, were, there were a lot of spiritual and psychological factors involved. And then when you get to Faust, you start to think about the mad scientist who is also represents something like the bad father. I'll, I'll just give an example. Uh, there was uh, uh, two examples, okay, uh, movies of the 19. Uh, 30s. There was one called Dr. Cyclops, and I have very little doubt that the uh, scriptwriters had read Freud's essay on the Cyclops because it was all about uh, a father figure who was the bad father, the authority figure who, uh, in, in the movie, he shrank people who were spying on his sexual activity. I mean, that's very Freudian. He had symbolic sexual activities and people were spying on him and he shrank them to the size of children and then around about pursuing them. The 
the, the poster shows him shooting at them with death rays sort of from the evil eye. The other one was Boris Karloff uh, in The Invisible Ray. Boris Karloff, who uh, not not playing the Frankenstein's monster, but playing the mad scientist himself, who then transforms into a monster. So again, this is the bad father, the authority figure, uh, be becoming dangerous and glows in the dark and goes around killing people with the touch of his radioactive uh, hands, and I, I, I won't even begin to go into the sexual things and so forth. The whole idea of mutation involves uh, the monster. The original monster was a, a monstrosity, was a badly born child, okay? It, it, was, it was a mutant child, so mutations uh, involve uh, literally create monsters in the old terms of the world. I could just go on and on forever about all this stuff that gets dragged into this. Uh, I, I will say when I started looking to climate change, I was looking to see if there was anything comparable. And the answer is no. If you look at climate change, I think of glaciers and polar bears and so forth. There's none of this deep psychological stuff. Nuclear energy, it turns out, from its very origins, uh, has hooks, very deep hooks, into all kinds of things in the human psyche, of which the most serious ones are these ones having to do with authorities and secrecy, the secrets of the atom and so forth, the secrets of creation, and therefore is deeply involved with matters of trust, which is the deepest problem in our society, the matter of mistrust of authorities, mistrust of science. So it, it goes straight to the deepest problems. I mentioned Sadi because, well, I hadn't heard about him before I read your book. Sadi uh, was the first person to suggest that the careless science could blow up the world by accident. Talk about an apocalypse, a careless scientist in the laboratory. This was back, you know, before 1910. There were already people talking about atomic bombs. There were people talking about nuclear terrorists. With well, there's H.G. Wells, the world set free. Yeah, then 1913, right. An atomic war followed, by, of course, by an atomic golden age with atom-powered air cars and free love. There's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, positive mythology associated with it as well as negative mythology as all myths have for these double-sidedness yeah actually i'd be curious to hear more about the kind of nuclear optimism so my my understanding is that there's these kind of preemptions of the destructive power of um you know unleashing uncovering secrets of the atom and then you get eisenhower's atoms for peace speech yeah. UN. You get the formation of the Atomic Energy Agency. This is kind of swords into plowshares spirit of optimism of, you know, using uh, the atom for, for goods. That seemed like a kind of brief, fragile, but extremely interesting phase in the kind of history of attitudes to nuclear. Yeah. Well, as, as I mentioned, in, in the World Set 3 already in 1913, H.G. Uh, Wells imagined that an atomic war would be followed by an atomic golden age with, you know, free energy from the atom. And the early atomic scientists kind of hoped for this. They they actually hoped that the atomic bomb would make war impossible. Well, that hasn't been true. And yet there, there are many political scientists and international relations experts who believe that the presence of nuclear weapons has at least uh, prevented the advent of World War III and has made people much more cautious. So that that's not entirely uh, a false thing. And they also believe that it would be possible to roll out nuclear energy very cheaply and to uh, <clears throat> make it the, 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 the source of uh, our main energy. And actually, of course, in France, uh, they, they succeeded. The majority of France's electricity supply comes from reactors, and they sell it to countries that uh, 
don't like to have reactors and make make money off of these countries. So it, it, it wasn't such a false thing. But there was another aspect to it also, uh, which was very much in the mind of Eisenhower and the other people, which was that people were terrified, uh, quite rightly, of nuclear weapons. And it had a, was having a strong effect. And uh, it had a particularly strong effect on uh, children and adolescents that basically their parents couldn't protect them. Okay, the authorities couldn't protect them from the Russian bombers or in, in Soviet case from the American bombers. Uh, and, and so this, this was one of the reasons for the origins of distrust and Eisenhower and many other people hoped that uh, part of the solution to this problem was to get people uh, to move away from their fears by touting atoms for peace. And this had the unfortunate effect of pushing nuclear energy uh, forward faster than it naturally would have done. There was a, a great deal of effort to get nuclear reactors uh, online for pe peaceful purposes. And uh, they, they, well, be because it means they weren't as safe as, or weren't either as cheap or as safe as they should have been. I think they, if, if they, if they, uh, the scientists uh, and the technologists and the businessmen had been uh, completely in charge, you know, didn't have this. Uh, propaganda aspect, and also a Cold War aspect of proving we can do everything better than the Russians. If it hadn't had this aspect, it would have been rolled out in a better way, and we wouldn't have had uh, things like uh, you know Three Mile Island and Chernobyl, probably. Although, as I say, uh, you can't avoid industrial accidents. You're always going to have some industrial accidents. And if, if the nuclear ones were treated in the same way as other industrial accidents of comparable severity, then and have had so much problems. The other problem with nuclear energy in the West is that it's, uh, it's been very expensive and it's been very difficult to bring in new reactors on budget and on time. In fact, they haven't brought them in on budget and on time. But this is a general problem in our society. We're not able to bring in subways or bridges or just or new airports or just about anything on budget or not time. It's a, a whole separate sub a whole separate problem and discussion. On, on, on that point, actually, like, um, this is one thing I don't think I, like, fully um, appreciated until, like, relatively recently, but nuclear energy also just seems to have received, like, a lot of the, like, U.S. government's, like, share of, of energy R&D. Like, I think the statistic is something that, like, since World War II, almost, like, 50% of the Department of Energy's R&D has gone to, to nuclear energy. I think for, like, reference, I think fossil fuels is, is closer to, like, a quarter um, well, that seems also. entirely likely for for several reasons. Number one, uh, the especially in the early days, reactors were uh, largely regarded as a way of producing plutonium for atomic bombs. So they always spent a lot of money, and the reactors were put in submarines and so forth. So a lot of this money is for military purposes. Uh, and secondly, the fossil fuels were already a largely mature uh, technology. So the uh, payback wouldn't be so great. And thirdly, of course, there's already an enormous fossil fuel industry that for its own reasons uh, was doing research on how to improve its technologies. So uh, it's hardly surprising. But I, I guess the thing to like throw into the mix here is if you compare it then to like renewables, like like solar and wind, which I think have received something like 10% or such of like- um, That's right. Oh, what, what the cost it, it, like reductions there have been like really drastic when you compare to like how much money has been spent on, on nuclear and is seeing like flat, if not- um, Yeah, not even, even, even the denialists like Bjorn Lomborg and people like him 
uh, say that more money should be spent on research and renewables and so forth. It, it's it, it's one of the you know the the the. The, the famous symbol is Jimmy Carter putting solar panels on the roof yeah. of the White House and then Reagan coming in and taking them off, which <laughs> symbolized the, the, the cutbacks uh, on solar. And yet for all that, uh, the solar industry that we have now was created by government subsidies. Uh, Tesla, uh, Tesla would have gone under except for a government subsidy at an early point. Uh, and not just the U.S. government, but uh, in particular, that uh, at one point I said, well, okay, I, I understand this stuff better than other people. I know that solar industry is going to be big. I'll put some money into uh, solar industries. Well, that was a good idea, except that China decided to subsidize its solar industries in order to corner the world market. So the American manufacturers didn't do as well as I had hoped they would. So, you, you know, there's always a geopolitical risk investing so the uh spain and germany put a lot of money into subsidizing the uh solar energy uh and, and getting it out and wind also so we the reason we're now in a position where we if, if we work hard we can save ourselves is thanks to these inadequate uh but never nevertheless vital uh subsidies yeah, that were given yeah. in the past I, I just to, I guess, like kind of clarify my my point from before as well in relation to this like discussion around nuclear. It's definitely not like any like normative statement or like whether more R and D spending should happen or or less, but rather I guess just like taking seriously the fact that like costs are like at the moment like a real issue, um, especially when contrasting it to like other energy technologies that seem to um, you know have done. Um, a lot better with um, reducing costs kind of alongside R&D. I think it just speaks more to like how big the like maybe engineering or, or, or scientific challenge there is. Um, more yeah, there, there's, there's never been enough money spent on R&D. Well, you have to talk about research and development and deployment because it's also proven important to subsidize uh, you know, consumers to buy the stuff. But the, the, the biggest payback is on R&D. They... they the, the payback for R&D is just enormous, but it's only a social payback, so you can't expect uh, private people to fund it. It has to come from government, and uh, government doesn't expect a payment for 20, 10 or 20 years, and so the politicians aren't so happy doing it. But it was, it's always been very severely underfunded. The only good thing that's happened in the last year is in the, the Biden infrastructure bill, which did pass, uh, they, they gave a big uh, big step up to R&D and the Department of Energy, which is the, the first big step up it's had in, I don't know, 30 years or something. Yeah, I'll, I'll include some graphs actually to the to write up to this. It's actually astonishing. I think it's the first time that it's spending more money than it did, I think, back in the 1980s. It's been like really shockingly flat, like over the past few decades. Yeah, I know. It's just it's just been shameful, shameful. And not, not only our government, but all governments. I'd like to uh, jump back on this this kind of story of attitudes to nuclear. So we kind of left off around about the 50s. There's uh, a kind of uh, optimism with the flavor of propaganda um, uh, subsequent to Eisenhower's speech. And then um, a few things happen. So there's the Castle Bravo test of um, fusion, a bomb. Uh, Sputnik is launched in 57 and uh, things change after that. I don't know if you want to speak to both, like either of those things. 
Sure. Okay. Uh, Sputnik is not so relevant. Uh, Bravo, very much so, because the, the first big uh, uh, hydrogen bomb test uh, turned out to be much bigger than they expected. There was much more fallout than they expected, and some of it fell on a Japanese fishing boat that was in a few hundred miles away and uh, caused radiation damage uh, to the fishermen and also some fell on the Marshall Islands and damaged the Marshall Islanders. And uh, the Japanese became concerned. They started to measure the radioactivity of tuna fish that was caught in their waters. And they found, no, no surprise, that it had small amounts of radioactivity. Well, well to the Japanese, I mean, this, this is like Americans found radioactivity in their hamburger, okay? This is, this is sacred stuff. And, and so be, because of this, uh, and of course, because of their experience with Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the Japanese began a movement against nuclear weapons, which very rapidly spread around the world as a mass movement against the arms race. And what they wanted to do was to save themselves from nuclear war. But what they saw as the best means to uh, rouse people was the fallout from atomic bomb tests, just the stuff that had gone into the Japanese tuna. And then it turned out was getting into American hamburger, into American mother's milk and so forth. So this is a backyard issue. This is one that can stir up people. There's, there's this poisonous substance, you know, never mind that it's vastly less likely to cause cancer or mutations than, you know, a thousand of your household products. This, this is a product of the atomic bomb, is, is a, one of my favorite quotes as a child, uh, saying somebody, mom says you shouldn't eat snow because there's a piece of the bomb in it, okay? Fog was a piece of the bomb. It was, it was this horrible, radioactive, mysterious, uh, deeply secret, deeply cosmic force and so forth, and it was getting into people's homes. So, so th this was their main argument, and it was a very effective argument, and the scientists were debating about how many you know, people were being killed or how many children were being born as monsters or miscarried and so forth. They all deeply emotional, very deeply emotional things, mother's milk, the deformation of babies and so forth. Uh, after the Cuban Missile Crisis uh, brought the whole thing to a head, uh, Kennedy and Khrushchev solved the problem, uh, number one, by making a show of detente, which was sincere, and number two, by putting the bomb tests underground so no fallout and the whole thing just collapsed and if you if you, if you, you you look at the, the 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 movies the novels the newspaper articles uh all of a sudden they just disappeared all of a sudden people stopped talking about nuclear weapons uh if you asked people you know if you asked people in 1955 what are the most important issues uh Atomic warfare would have come out on top. If you asked them in 1965, they'd list crime in the economy and God knows what. And you say, what about nuclear war? And they say, oh, yeah, I, I kind of forgot about that. Yeah, that, that's important, too. So uh, come along a, a, a few years later, and Adams for Peace was doing very well. People were rolling out reactors. And people started looking at reactors and saying, could that explode like an atomic bomb? Could it produce uh, radioactivity? And all of the arguments about fallout from nuclear bombs were immediately picked up as arguments against nuclear industry, nuclear waste, nuclear fall, fallout from an accident and so on. Uh, the, the, the same arguments, if you 
uh, saw somebody in 1960 with a sign saying no nukes, it meant no nuclear weapons. If you saw somebody with a sign in 1975 saying no nukes, it meant no nuclear reactors. And it was not just the same arguments. In many cases, it was the same people and the same organizations that had argued against uh, nuclear arms race were now arguing against nuclear reactors. This is a phenomenon known in the psychological world as displacement. You're terrified of nuclear weapons, but you find you can't do anything about it. So let's find something else that, and declare it's equally dangerous and something we can do something about and let's put our energies on that. And I guess this is coinciding if we're in the early 60s around about now with the kind of nascent environmentalist movement, which gets wrapped up in this kind of suspicion of nuclear, which infuses from weapons, which is a, a correct um, uh, apprehension fear to have into the nuclear industry in general. Yeah, there was actually a debate uh, in the early days in the Sierra Club. There was a serious debate over should we support nuclear reactors because they're good for the environment overall, or should we oppose nuclear reactors? And eventually, uh, they were persuaded to oppose nuclear reactors. But there was a point there when the environmentalists might have supported nuclear reactors as environmentally much friendlier than coal. I was going to ask, it, it, it's kind of a bit terrifying or sad if it's, it's true, but it does feel to me like the history of early environmentalism. There's this kind of fragility or path dependency on which way they went on nuclear power. And yes. it seems, at least to me, easy to imagine things going the other way and, and nuclear power. Yeah, as, as they did in France, for example, right. and yeah. for that matter, in China and Russia, hmm. uh, where uh, uh, France shares with China and Russia that they're kind of willing to put their technologists and engineers in charge of things. They have very good trains, for example, <laughs> compared with the United States. So here's another thing. Uh, Three Mile Island... Um, late 70s, I guess it kind of cements some of this like uh, fear or skepticism about nuclear power. But I actually don't know much about what the reaction was after this incident and indeed what in fact happened there. Yeah, well, actually, there's a new documentary just out. I probably right, shouldn't yeah. tout it because there, <laughs> you know, it was, it was made by uh, somebody who made a film which was all about how you shouldn't trust capitalists and industry people and so on. It's all about mistrust of the authorities uh, as, as, as if somehow the nuclear industry was worse than other things. But in fact, Three Mile Island, the authorities reacted pretty much the way all industrial ones do. They they got confused about their communication. They, they People tried to cover their asses and make things seem better than they should be. And this extended to the government bureaucracy. And this was kind of what normally happens with industries, but because it was a nuclear thing, everybody got super terrified if people a thousand miles away thought that their lives might be dangerous. And made a, it, was, you know, it was on the news for weeks, okay? Uh, a year after that, there was a waste dump fire on Staten Island. Okay, uh, the, 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 a lot of bad chemicals went up into the atmosphere, and so they uh, they they closed the schools and sent children home. They told people they should stay inside and close their windows for a couple of days until the cloud blew away. Why is the cloud bad? Same same thing as with radioactivity. Okay, it could cause cause cancer mutations and probably more immediate things. Uh, it was it was potentially far more dangerous, actually, than Three Mile Island. And uh, there was no 
big deal. Okay, so the, the the newspapers covered it for a day or so. There was no big government investigations. There was no long deal about it because this was uh, chemical waste. Okay, it, it it wasn't the secret cosmic forces of the of the of the universe governed by strange scientists and connected with the uh, horrible atomic bombs that are pointed at our heads and could be set off at any moment. So it was a normal industrial like accident, but it was not treated that way by the yeah. media or by the public or by the government for that matter. Yeah. I have an incredibly kind of vague question to begin rounding off on this this story. I think, I mean, as I take it, you're, one of the kind of claims you're making is that um, this kind of bundle of imagery around, you know, the kind of new alchemy, uncovering kind of Mother Nature's secrets, also the associations with um, nuclear bombs. But in other words, cultural associations and stories we tell ourselves these are like important factors in explaining the state of nuclear power now in terms of the energy mix and so on. Um, this is like a pretty interesting, pretty significant claim. And like, I think, I guess you've mentioned, it doesn't really apply to other kinds of energy. And I'm wondering like, if you have anything to say about in general, the, how kind of imagery shapes public attitudes and what kind of evidence we have for um, its kind of power to do that, even, even beyond nuclear. It, it all comes down to culture, ultimately. Everything depends on what people believe about things, and, and uh, in, in particular, what they trust or are willing to trust and what they are not willing to trust. Uh, nuclear industry is a unique case. Uh, it, you, you can't extrapolate it from the other cases. There is, there's nothing except maybe the Christian religion in our culture that has so many deep psychological and uh, cultural and uh, pro profound uh, cultural hooks. So nuclear industry just isn't anything like anything else. It's had a, a, a very strong effect on things more than has happened uh, with, with other industries. Al although when you start getting into medicine, of course, you also find extremely important imagery and uh, cultural things involved they're also all you know these, these things are life and death matters millions of people die because they have uh wrong uh thoughts about vaccine or or about quack medicines and uh, i could give many other examples in medicine where uh bad bad imagery and uh mistaken cultural attitudes uh lead literally to large-scale uh, deaths as a as a last question i guess a kind of corollary of this um, this story about attitudes to nuclear is if they are driven by inaccurate images and beliefs then presumably those beliefs are amenable to being changed through um, accurate popular portrayals of how nuclear power works I'm curious how hopeful you are that um, very that very, difficult. very difficult very <laughs> uh, difficult uh, I, I could go on and this is some like but you know it, it, it's so deeply embedded that it's like changing people's attitudes towards religion. It can be done. Uh, you can change people's attitudes uh, uh, if, if, if they're interested enough in it and willing to do it. And people's attitudes do change. There were people who were uh, environmentalists who were deeply opposed to nuclear uh, power, like people like Emery Levitt and Stuart Brand and so forth, you know, very important environmental people who now say that, uh, yes, uh, we, we, they, they were wrong and we do need nuclear power. 
so they can be changed. However, the most important thing, <laughs> frankly, you do surveys and you find that uh, the majority of the American people, public will say, oh, if nuclear power was significantly cheaper and would lower the, my electricity charge, I'd accept it. So this is why uh, R&D is probably uh, R&D into better uh, nuclear reactors and cheaper nuclear reactors is probably the most important way to change cultural attitudes. I guess I'm I'm curious about um, where that leaves us then kind of like looking forward. I guess like one question here is a lot of this discussion has been around um, US culture and definitely that like has effects out there as uh, like, like globally as well. But I'm curious how uh, much this is like maybe already path dependent or kind of um, set for countries that might still be industrializing or are like currently asking themselves the question of like how much they should like have nuclear in their energy mix and what potential there might be there but also just like more broadly i'm curious for how you see um yeah like either policy interventions or, or other recommendations um that should kind of go uh, as a result from this in the in the nuclear space well obviously i feel that we should roll out nuclear as fast as possible but that okay let, let, let's let's be clear about the situation we're in okay according to the ipcc uh, we are going to get into the danger zone. The danger zone is anywhere above 1.5, certainly above 2 degrees. We are going to get into the danger zone later in this century uh, unless we change our ways. And changing our ways means now. We have to have emissions are rising, as they have been uh, for the last century. We need to have emissions declining by 2030. Uh, and we have to have policies in place by that time that will keep the declining. This means that it's not we're not in a position to talk about uh, what we should do over the long run. Uh, we have to make the changes in this decade. Uh, we have delayed action for so long that we can no longer delay taking serious action. It, it, we are actually at, at probably arguably the greatest crisis point in the history of civilization and, and you know one of the great crisis points in the entire history of the uh, biology of the planet that we have to turn things around during the next decade so this, this people have a hard time accepting this it means that uh, the people who are politically active now have an incredible responsibility for the entire future of the planet and civilization you know it's it's like we've been put into some kind of science fiction movie you know where we we have to save the universe but it's not science fiction it's 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 act it's geophysics uh it's actually all on us uh, right here and right now so this means that we have to start taking action immediately to do things and that that certainly includes you know the policies that are necessary include uh, R&D so we can roll out better uh, nuclear reactors and then who knows maybe we'll be able to do do it with batteries maybe we won't need nuclear reactors but we need to try everything we have to do everything now we have to it's it's all hands on deck we have we have to roll out everything we can we have an enormous change to make in our uh, society, mm -hmm. in our industry. And so we have to start doing all of it and we have to start doing all of it right now. Yes, and that is, a, I think, a fitting message to end with. Here's a, a kind of a last question, um, or at least I, I have a pair of questions. If you imagine someone is, has listened to all of this, wants something to do next, something to read next, um, do you have book or film or article recommendations for a kind of immediate next next place to learn more? Yeah, sure. Um, in the first place, I assume that you will uh, link to my website. 
Of course. Uh, uh, yeah, Discovery of Global Warming. And the Discovery of Global Warming website has a big page of links, uh, which is up to date and curated. So I think that's a good place to look uh, for links uh, on things. Uh, and also the website itself has everything, you, uh, both, both short essays and very, very complete essays on the science if they're interested in the science. So, so that's, that's what I rec would recommend. Uh, since you brought up nuclear energy, uh, I have a book called The Rise of Nuclear Fear, which says much more than I've had a chance to say here. So I'll recommend The Rise of Nuclear Fear for that particular issue. Uh, not about current nuclear industry, but about the things we were talking about, the cultural things. Uh, and then I have one book to recommend for people who are want to know uh, ideas about what to do about politics, especially in the United States, uh, what, what to do about the political divide and how to uh, we, we, we can address it uh, in such a divided nation. And that, that's by a, a very interesting uh, person called Anatole Lieben, L-I-E-B-E-N. And the title of the book is Climate Change and the Nation State. So for people who really want to think carefully about the political situation and how we can uh, turn it uh, against climate uh, change, I recommend Lieben's Climate Change and the Nation State. Fantastic. And we will link to uh, all of those if yeah, you can yeah. find them. Uh -huh. um, so our last question is, there is at least a decent chance that some people listening to this right now are in uh, a place to do research of their own. Um, and so the question is something like, what kinds of research projects, um, given what we've talked about, are you especially excited to see people go out and do? Well, you know, they, they would know better than I do. Uh, and frankly, that's not the most important thing, that, that, that the time for research is almost past. Uh, there is some interesting and good research being done on how to persuade people about climate change, uh, how to change attitudes, so that that's probably the most important uh, research development in the current crisis. Of course, as I say, we need enormous amounts of research on uh, tundra. We need enormous research on batteries. The, the people in those fields know better than I do what they need to do. Fantastic. I guess um, the very last question then uh, for us to ask is where can people find out about uh, you online? Is there any uh, website or Twitter that uh, yeah people could could reach out to? Yeah, the website that that that's all there. Yeah, it's called the Discovery of Global Warming. Uh, it includes extensive essays with more than three thousand scientific references on the. Uh, science of climate change and also some rather uh, longer but but not comprehensive essays on the politics of climate change in the United States and, and the international scientific community. Uh, and as I say, it contains a, a page of recommended links. It contains a short 10-minute history. Uh, it contains a link to my book, The Discovery of Global Warming, which is, a, a, I guess, about a two- or three-day read. And, and it has a one page, maybe two page essay on my general summary of what needs to be done about it. So that, that, that's all there on that website. It's, 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 it's gets lots of viewers, lots of people use it.
Yeah, fantastic. I, I'll, I'll add as well that I found it an absolutely tremendous and, and comprehensive resource. Yeah, the American Institute of Physics website, it's the most visited uh, page except for the page where you apply for jobs. <laughs> <laughs> that gets, as you can imagine, many thousands of uh, hits. Well, no, this is, uh, yeah, fantastic. And thank you so much for your time. Um, Spencer Wood, thank you so much. Okay, always a pleasure. That was Spencer Wood on the discovery of climate change. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash word. That's spelled W-E-A-R-T. There you'll find links to all the papers and books referenced throughout our interview, plus a whole lot more. And if you know of any other cool resources on these topics that you think others might find useful too, then please do send them to us at feedback at hearthisidea.com and we'll add them to the website. Likewise, if you have any constructive feedback, email us or click on the website where we have a link to an anonymous form under each episode. And lastly, if you want to support and help us pay for hosting these episodes online, you can leave us a tip by following the link in the description. A big thanks as always to our producer, Jason, for editing these episodes. Uh, also to Claudia for writing the transcripts. And thank you very much for listening. <laughs>